Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Join Mason and Jake each week as they try new wines and discover how much government is in your drink. Hello and welcome to another fantastic episode of Tasting Anarchy. I'm your host, Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I'm joined by... Mason Joseph. And this week we have uh, some of Mason's and my favorite guests on because we always have a conversation that goes way over, although we we started out this episode 30 minutes, I guess, ahead talking about <laughs> conspiracies. We got, and We got the long-windedness out of our system. Yeah, so we, we, got, we got the guys... <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> we got the guys from Peaceful Treason on with us. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves? Yeah, I'm Jared. And I'm Will. We, we go by only our first names. <laughs> All we're, right. We're, we're, yeah, we're scaredy cats. Yeah, that, that's yeah, kind I mean, of... Clearly, we're the idiots. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know yeah, what? I, I, you go for it. I'm sorry. Oh, I I've, I just found out recently that I, I was actually giving out way too much information on on some other various medias, and yeah, <laughs> kind of had kind of had some 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 received some weird messages like, "Oh yeah, I don't live too far from you." Like, wait, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> I don't even know why we we try anymore. It, we we may as well just come come out full board. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know. Like Mason, I don't think even from the beginning, I don't think you and I tried to hide it who we were i think like we talked about it for like five seconds before we recorded the first episode and then we were both like oh here's our full name and with this is the city we live in." yeah yeah i think so too <laughs> here's because how long we've known each other and here's all these things we've done that you could connect yeah well because i think it's it just like for the way that you and i talk about it and the way and the topics that we talk about it just was like it, it makes it's not relevant to hide the identity and also even before you and i started doing the show, and this is another landmark for the show. I had done 104 episodes of other podcasts. Yeah. Uh, and I just recently calculated that out by looking at the two other podcasts I used to do. So this will actually also be the episode that ties my other podcasts, uh, which you can still hear some of the Mike Federale show on Stitcher. It's still there. And there's some episodes somewhere of the Comic Kings podcast. <laughs> um, so those were my, my former shows. Congratulations, by the way. It takes some really uh, a lot of stick to itiveness, you know, to to go to 104 twice. And yeah. To yeah. this most recent 104 to not really miss any. So that's 52 times two, two years, essentially not missing a week, right? How close are you guys to two years? We well, we're actually past two years, but um, we have a weird recording we, history. Where yeah. Recorded like we we had this idea that we were going to get ten in the bag. So that way we couldn't miss anything. And then there was over, like, kind of leading into Childerberg, like, Jacob had done, like, a bunch of minis. So, mm-hmm. like, there's a lot in the catalog that are, like, short or, like, a couple where we were having a sister on kind of monthly to, like, go over beer stuff. So. Yeah, it's been, it's been, we- yeah, it's been, it's been a weird, kind of a weird thing. And, and we'll get into this a little bit in the episode. I, 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 I marked a couple of episodes that were relevant to one of the topics I wanted to cover tonight. Uh, but yeah, there was, there was a long time where like, it, it's, it's definitely the evolution of Mason and me learning more about wine. And there was a lot of mini episodes where I did like wine comparisons where I was like, this is a cab franc from here. This is a cab franc from here. And this is a cab franc from here. I'm going to try all three and we're going to see what they're, what the difference is. So that's, that, that takes, that takes some, uh, planning and, I, you guys, you guys have got it going on. It's a, it's a great model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and, at the, and to, as of today, maybe we'll get in, we'll get into what everybody's drinking. As of today, I am out of of wine that I haven't previously tried. I have 
three bottles of wine left out of my however many I had, Mason. But next week I have 136 bottles arriving. Oh my god, that's insane! Yeah, that is amazing. What, what's the funniest thing about this is like, so Jacob's apartment I think is like square footage wise, it's like 800, 800 square feet. It's small. It, it's very small, and it's it's Texas, so it's very tall. Like, I mean, him and his wife, as you both, or yeah, as you both know, they're pretty tall people, but like. I don't know where they're going to put it all. Like, he just <laughs> the mystery box of wine he bought the other day, in addition to this set of wine. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there because I thought about getting it for him as well. Uh, it's kind of like a gift. And then I was just like, I don't think he understands like the physical volume of wine that's going to just be make right. it. Just make it a display, just ceiling, <laughs> you know, floor yeah. to ceiling, wall to wall, <laughs> a, a nice wine display. Yeah. Well, I was, I was, ca- how, I was kind of calculating it out. I only have rack space enough for fifty. <laughs> so I was like, "Dang it, I'm gonna have to keep these in boxes somewhere." And I and no, you'll you'll figure it out. You yeah. got to get those. You got to get them in. You know, on display somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's it's a good idea. But you know, with wine, you've got to lay them sideways so that the liquid still touches the cork, so the cork doesn't dry out. Right, uh, and and shouldn't yeah. they also be uh, kind of in a dark area too, or does that matter? Uh, it does if you're going to keep it for a long time. But I mean. I don't really like to admit that I'm this much of an alcoholic, but <laughs> I think I'll go through them fairly quickly, so it won't be a problem. Yeah. So, so I guess I guess uh, there's a couple places I've bought wine from. One is a very nice wine store in our area, and they do have them mostly horizontal. Yeah. Um, then there's a few kind of supermarkets that also have pretty extensive wine collections, but those are almost always stored vertically. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, all things considered, you you would not want to buy them there, especially if it looks like something of an older vintage that may have been there a while. Yeah, so, right? yeah, if it's been on the shelf for a long time, it, it could be. There's things that you can do to, like, touch it. And they also, now they put, like, the the kind of, uh, it's not even foil anymore. It's like, a, it's like a plastic that's, like, vacuum sealed. So you're not getting any air in there. The reason is, is because cork, when it dries out, you get more air in. And then you end up getting uh, air into the bottle, so it oxidizes and it'll turn into vinegar eventually. And I actually had my very first ever bottle that was vinegar, uh, or it had it had a very strong vinegar taste. Uh, and it was be it was, and I I kind of noticed this after I bought the bottle that the cork was not placed correctly. It was sticking out just slightly, and I and I kind of thought to myself, I was like, you know what, I probably should drink this soon. And I end up drinking it months and months and months later. So. It it ended up not being good. Although I don't know, Victoria tried it. And she was like, "I don't taste vinegar," but I I tasted it. It it tasted gross to me, so I poured it out. I I, I think that might have happened to me last night. Uh, okay. <laughs> so in preparation for this episode, I uh, I bought two bottles of wine. I was gonna say Chuck, a, five bottles of wine. Now. <laughs> <laughs> one was a Pinot. Uh, did not drink even. I, I probably had three glasses, small, you know, modest pours. But uh, one was a Sterling Point. Uh, Pinot Noir or, or Sterling something Pinot Noir. I can't mm. I can't think of what it was. Okay. But when I went to take the cork off, it was totally dry and it broke in half and I had to like be real delicate to get it back out. Yeah. And it did it did have a it had a really good flavor, but I think it might have been starting to to vinegar just a little bit. Yeah. Is yeah, that you, something you that would that. happen suddenly or could it be could it be a, a gradual thing? Well, so this is what's interesting is that 
you sometimes these really old vintages that are like a hundred years old, two hundred years old, or whatever, they'll pour a glass of that vintage, and you have to drink it really fast, or it'll turn to vinegar. So, mm-hmm. it, so it can be very suddenly, uh, but it huh. also it'll also happen in the bottle too. It, I mean, that's what vinegar is is it's a byproduct of wine, uh, right? You know, people will make balsamic vinegar out of out of wine. And usually it's it's cheaper wine, but wine will do that as well. And it's just from improper storage. It's not, and sometimes not improper storage. Sometimes it's just that there's a fault in the cork, and there's nothing anybody can do about that. It's just it's just the it, you know the cork is a natural material. It comes off a tree most of the time, unless it's a synthetic cork. And the synthetic corks are usually pretty uniform, but the the yeah. natural cork is from a tree. Sometimes they've got more holes in them. Sometimes they're more porous, and it just lets more air in. And that's and there's just nothing you can do about it. It's just one of those things. Uh, this was a, an award-winning wine. It was a, a Sterling Vinter. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it, but um, it was, it was decent. Know. And and it it has a tobacco spice flavor, so that Ooh. actually might have been one yeah. of those tasting. An added flavor? Or that's just a. It's a, just one of the, the tasting notes. Flavor profile, okay. yeah, tasting it's like, note. It's like they just ash into the barrels and then seal them <laughs> up. Right? Yeah, well, you, you you'll get yeah tobacco usually comes from oak, so you'll get you can get a lot of those tobacco notes if they've been oaked. Uh, I think American yeah. oak is more heavy on the tobacco flavors, and European oak is oak is more like spices and stuff. But oh. you know, I don't know. There's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff like that in wine where it's like this has got this and this has got that, and like whether or not you taste that or not, that's you know it's an it's another story. Like I think Mason and I are both kind of amateurs still, and it's just you drink what you like, and if you don't like it, you don't get it again, uh, or or so maybe how, you try a different vintage. How long before you guys are? Uh, how do you pronounce it? Sommeliers. Well, that's Sommelier. that's yeah. <laughs> what is it? How do you pronounce it? Sommelier. Sommelier. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's like a certification. Like yeah. it's an actual right. like process. Like I f- most likely could not ever achieve it because I have like a really bad sense of smell, which impacts my sense of taste pretty heavily. Yeah, uh, it's one of those things you're either yeah. you're kind of born with it or you're not, right? Yeah. Well, you can you can really improve it, but like. I'm just not willing to do that work. Yeah. I mean, like I'm, I'm W set level two, which is a different certification similar to sommelier, but it's like to get, to be really good, you have to go to like level four. Level two is pretty easy. And, uh, it's, although W sets more along the lines of the business, the business side of wine and sommelier is more along the lines of the serving side of wine. Uh, so they're both certification programs. They kind of compete with each other. WSET is more for people who are just interested in wine and want to know more about wine in general and the business side of wine. And then sommeliers are more for people who want to go into the restaurant industry. Well, I've, I've, I watched the movie Sideways yeah. last night as well. I didn't just get wine. We also got a, a nutty Edam cheese uh, oh, and a couple okay. of bottles of wine. And we also watched Sideways. Mm-hmm. So I figure... I, I should at least be qualified for like an entry level certification just based on that. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, probably you could get double W set level one. It, it's it's really very easy. It, it's a it's like a five hour class. They go and you get free wine with it, or well, quote unquote free because you pay for the class. But they they basically they teach you about basic food pairing and they teach you uh, what wines are from what places and what you expect from different places and then that's cool. le- that's w set level 1 it's great that actually sounds fun yeah, it's yeah, a, it is a lot of fun you like cheese and no geography and you got it, it it's <laughs> it's not only cheese they give you like uh, 
like smoked salmon and different types of meat oh. to try with it, like little bits of steak. So you can be like, this mm. is like this is a Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir goes well with this type of steak. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. This goes really well with this. It's a smoked salmon. And then, they, then they're like, try the smoked salmon. And now try this. And you're like, ooh, disgusting. And they're like, now put lemon juice on the smoked salmon and try it. And it's like, holy shit, that's completely different. Wow. So they, they go over like why this and this go together. Like today I had, and this is something I learned from my WSET classes, is I, ha- I have, we'll, we'll go ahead and get into what everybody's drinking. I've already reviewed this, but it's, it's, called, uh, La, it's called La Carmina. It's, a, it's an Albarino. It's Spanish. It's from uh, Rias Bayas, or it's, uh, it might be Bicas. I don't know how to say it, but it's uh, Rias, R-I-A-S, and uh, Bayas is B-A-I-X-A-S. So it's from that region of Spain. It's Albarino, like I said. It's a it's a fuller-bodied white wine. I, I've reviewed it before, so I don't remember what episode, but anybody who wants to know can just kind of go back and look through our archives. White wine that's fuller-bodied, lower acidity, goes well with delicate cheese. So I had this with um, herb and garlic crackers with brie. Uh, I finished the crackers. I still have a little bit of wine left, <laughs> so I'm still <laughs> drinking that. But but it was a good it was a good pairing, and so like that's you know. Albarino, Vignet, uh, the fuller-bodied white wines that are lower on acidity because they're from warmer climates. Although although Vignet can be more acidic, uh, those tend to go well with delicate cheeses, delicate like white cheeses like brie or cream cheese or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's I'm good. A, I'm a big fan of uh, coming at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm all about goat cheese. Like I, I can eat goat cheese with and on anything. Me as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. see, goat cheese, goat cheese is a little bit stronger. So, actually, what you had, Jared, I would go with, I would go with Pinot Noir with goat cheese because it's a little bit stronger cheese. Pinot Noir holds a little bit uh, more oomph against something that is more flavorful, like a goat cheese. And oh, we had we had goat cheese last night too. Oh, did you? Okay, that's that's a great that's a great we thing actually, to have. A, we we actually went a little bit overboard last night, to be honest with you. We had like three <laughs> three full size boards of meats and cheese and olives and. Mm-hmm. It was insane. It was awesome. Oh, that yeah, that sounds great. Now, Mason, you you are you're very anti cheese, so I am. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. what do you how what, can you be okay, wait, wait. Full stop. Wait. How can you be a wine expert, which you guys are, believe it or not, <laughs> whether you whether you'd like to admit it or not, and not like cheese. I can't Jared, I can't Jared, comprehend that. You might just be lactose intolerant. Did you ever think about okay, that? I'm sorry. <laughs> so insensitive. I'll let him answer now. I'm just curious. <laughs> no, I'm I'm actually not lactose intolerant, which is funny. Um I was the guy who never liked cheese. Like, and then at some point I was like, okay, if it's not the focus of the dish and it's melted, maybe. So yeah, I'm I it makes it really hard to go to a winery because they usually like have cheese plates and so you, you can't so you just actively, be like double the meat. So you actively don't like it, or, or yes. it's just not your. Oh, Correct. really? Wow. Yeah, I'm like. I could see it. Are there yeah, any like, cheeses that you do like? Well, like that's the thing is like I'll like a Swiss cheese like a like I'm at the point where like I'll eat a grilled cheese sandwich like because it's it's the bread can also be a big focus in a grilled cheese, and like I don't sure. mind Swiss on like um like a Reuben. I don't mind cheese pizza, like because those while cheese is a heavy element in those, it's not like macaroni and cheese, which is revolting. So like the idea of going like, I'm just going to pop this piece of cheese in my mouth and that's the only thing I'm going to eat. Just 
<laughs> it has no appeal to me. Yeah. Which like, like it's, it's, it's so different than me because like I will. I mean, Mason, you block of cheese. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll sit and oh, right, I'll exactly. sit and eat a block of cheese, and then I'll do copious amounts of some drug I probably shouldn't be doing, and then throw it all up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely well, somewhere in, in between you two. I, I'm yeah. not going to just eat uh, eat cheese unless it's you know very you know chased with you know sipping wine, beer, a cracker, an olive. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there is something text- texturally that bothers me about just like biting a chunk of cheese, chewing it a while, and not finishing it with anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, see that's that's Will speaking. This is Jared speaking. <laughs> I I can eat almost any kind of cheese alone. And I'm pretty sure I could live on only cheese. You ate the yeah. whole wheel of cheese. That's <laughs> yeah. that's how that's how I feel too. Like I, it's it's so good, and there's so many different types of cheese, and they all are so different that it, yeah. it's just it's such a wide world. And they make you know as cliche as it is, it makes great pairing with a lot of wines. Now some of, some some cheese is just too delicate to pair with uh, some wines, but there's probably at almost every level of wine when you go from like all the way from like something really delicate like Pinot Grigio all the way to like, uh, like what, a heavy what, zin. Yeah, like yeah. a heavy zin or uh yeah, I guess zin is yeah, zin's probably close to like the maximum level. No, uh, no, 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 no. I would I would I would I would say maybe like uh what's that one that they're starting to grow now in like Colorado and and actually Texas too. It's um yeah, whatever it is. Very, 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 very heavy, full-bodied wine. Very f- strong Malbec? flavor. No, no, Malbec is as delicate, man. Yeah. <laughs> Malbec uh, is a yeah. The, you can you can get more Vedre. More Vedre. <laughs> yeah, that's Vedre. what it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like that's the thing is like I recognize that cheese can do some amazing things to wine. I'm just not interested in it. So, but also I'm not really interested in olives either. And like my wife is into both of those things yeah. pretty heavily. So, and then like my best friends into both of those. Things. <laughs> that's that's why that's why your wife and I get along so well. <laughs> I know. So, and, and we're both from California. So then we yeah. just we spend all our time talking about California and these types of food. And you're like, I'm just over here drinking my wine. <laughs> yeah. What, so then, makes- so then, Mason, what what kind of food pairings do you like then? If you don't like you don't like olives and cheeses, that you I assume you like some sort of meats to pair. Oh, so this is the the funnier part is generally so like you're vegetarian. <laughs> no, no, definitely not a vegetarian. Um, but no, like so, um, when Jacob started taking the W set classes, like, and he was telling me about pairings and and some of the things you could do with the pairings to kind of modify the way you would taste a wine, I would famously, like, at least in Jacob and I's mind, be like. Oh, like Albarino, which is he, what's what he's drinking. Like I would be drinking like an Albarino and eating a steak, which is usually very fatty and like because of the lack of acidity, it's not going to do like it's a classic everybody knows red wine and steak. And part of that is like how the acid in the red wine interacts with the fat on your tongue and and things like that. So like I'd be the guy eating like kale. And drinking like a Zinfandel or something like that, because like kale does stuff to your tongue as well. And it has a very strong particular flavor. And then it would be eating through that. So like, but like I said earlier, like I'm not super strong in the smell and I'm not super strong in the taste. So like a lot of the times I don't really, and Jacob's this way too, like we don't usually like pair it with anything. 
That's true. We're just drinking wine, which has its disadvantages. Like tonight, like I've had a, a, a Zinfandel from Amador County in California. It's Terra, or Terra de Toro uh, 2015. I got it from Kroger for like eight bucks. I got two of them. But last night, my wife and I were like at the at the grocery store and we're like, oh, these steaks look really good. So we get steak, asparagus, and sweet potatoes. Two and a half hours after we get back from the grocery store, my parents text us and we're like, hey, we want to see our granddaughter. Like, why don't you guys come over for dinner tonight? So we ended up having steak, asparagus, and sweet potatoes two nights in a row. <laughs> what did I drink with it? Zinfandel. Nothing wrong but, with that. Yeah. Nothing wrong. Well, nothing wrong with it. Yeah, for sure. But like, um, so like I was drinking that Zinfandel, the first bottle, while eating the steak and like definitely seeing how it played with the fat. And like, what's really interesting is like, because of, like a heavy acidic wine can pull the fat off your tongue when you're eating a steak. Like you get like to retaste like those elements that you kind of didn't see in the steak originally and those retasting things. But like tonight when I was eating, like I was just drinking water because I had had two glasses of the wine just straight by itself. So most of the time, like Jacob and I just, yeah, drink. That's <laughs> like, true. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that, that's definitely and me. Don't consume something. Yeah. I also mean, because I, I intermittent fast and I used to drink predominantly while we were recording, like, and we record an hour after my fasting window ended. It's like, oh. well, not eating. Yeah. <laughs> so no, well, just that I, just, just from a, <laughs> an outsider, I think that would be an interesting element to maybe think about adding to your podcast because Based on your two totally different flavor profiles and the different types of foods that you like, I would find that pretty interesting, actually. Especially if I was like a really like wine guy, which it sounds like you guys attract more wine people than anarchists. But it's interesting. Something to think about. Yeah, it is. I we get. It's hard to tell. Like we get, we get now. Like I don't mind bragging about it or whatever, because like for me, it's a big accomplishment. We get. About a hundred downloads per episode, which is not a lot, <laughs> but it's close to where we are as far as episodes. So I'm like, well, if we can get one download per episode when we're at a thousand episodes, <laughs> then we, you know, we'll have a thousand downloads per episode. That's great. But uh, it's it's interesting the, the amount of people who email, and I share these with you sometimes, Mason. Sometimes I'm just like, whatever, like it's not a big deal, or from Twitter or whatever, where people are like, hey, I, I love the show. I love the anarchist talk and I love the libertarian talk, but I like whiskey or oh. I like beer. And I'm like, well, we do have some beer episodes, <laughs> but it's kind of like, well, that's not really what the show is where they'll be like, hey, you know, I, I'd like more episodes on, you know, mixed drinks. And it's like, well, yeah, but I mean, I guess that's it's not self-explanatory in the name, but I don't make mixed drinks, although my wife likes mixed drinks. so I've been trying to learn or I've been talking about learning them i have a book about mixed drinks <laughs> as do but, i <laughs> yeah so i was well, like well the- maybe i'll start making mixed drinks and then and then you know we'll talk a little bit about those but like i don't like liquor and well i like well for those for those listeners uh who prefer whiskey we have just the thing for them this week that's oh, what really we're on your uh, show yeah. well yeah we uh we we, we Mason, do you want to share yours first, and then we'll, and then we'll? Oh, go? I did technically. So oh. just just okay. recap it, Mason, real quick. Yeah. So I had the Terrar Toro uh, Zinfandel from uh, it's out of Amador Oh, that's County. what you're drinking now. Okay. No, no. Well, that's what I had. I, I'm not okay. drinking it at the moment. But um, 14.5 ABV. It's super dark uh, purple, almost black um, taste. Very dry with high tannins. Uh, kind of back 
a black pepper, but it's got like a plumish in there, which is kind of really interesting and fun. And like, I got it for basically half off what I can find it online for, you know, like eight bucks. So like I paid, I bought two. So I ended up paying basically what most, like you can get it for most places online for is like $16. Um, so that was pretty good. Yeah. All right. Right on. That sounds pretty good. I might, I'm, I'm going to see if I can get that at my Kroger. I hope so. Yeah. Man, we, we, uh, Kroger pulled out of here about four or five years ago. Yeah. And we were oh, yeah. so disappointed. There were so many, oh. like, just, you know, not so much wine, but so many, like, some, like, gourmet and kind of boutique style foods that they carry. They just, it just kind of disappeared when they left. It's so, great it's so prices. funny because, you know, when we, when I lived in Virginia Beach, Mason, you remember this. I used to really shit on Kroger mm-hmm. as, like, the poor person place to shop. As and you went to the food line. I ex- no, no, no. Well, food <laughs> line too, I used to shit on. I know, I know, but that I, was the- <laughs> I, I only went to Harris Teeter. Yeah. And then Harris Teeter got bought by Kroger, I think. And- but they had owned it pretty much the entire time. Oh, did they? Time, oh, okay. Yeah. And then, and then I guess Farm Fresh was the other one that I'd go to, and then they went out yeah, of business. Yeah, the, the local one. And then they sold like a bunch of their, like they sold out basically. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's interesting because I always, I always saw Kroger, and, and this bias may still be in, in my bias, although we shop at Kroger now, but, I always had the bias that like Kroger was like the low end grocery store, <laughs> which is funny. Well, that's how they positioned themselves when they originally appeared in Hampton Roads is the big low end. Hmm. And then they've just kind of slowly moved into mid market here. Hmm. So you guys have Aldi's. Mm-hmm. We have Aldi. Well, so because Aldi, Aldi tends to be that, that low end. Yeah. But man, you can find some good stuff, like good organic stuff, good deals. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just pretty good. It, just because it's low end doesn't mean that there's not some good stuff in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah we we go to Aldi sometimes. And what is the other one? Lidl that is in yeah. in. Uh, I I like yeah. Lidl a lot. Yeah, so we've got Lidl, Aldi, Food Lion, um, obviously Walmart, Target, um, Harris Teeter, Kroger, uh, Fresh Market, Whole Foods. I mean, Trader Joe's. They're every. Every one of the big nationals, I think, is represented here except for Safeway. I think, like, mm. whatever conglomerate Safeway is part of is the only one that doesn't have a representation in Hampton Roads at this point. And, like, they're opening Aldi's and Lidl's, like, left and right. So they're all over the place. <laughs> do you, do you guys have, do you have uh, Lidl? I've never heard of it. No. Oh, really? Okay. So it's, it's, it's basically like, Mason, you'll, you'll explain this better, but it's like mm-hmm. a split off of Aldi or something? Yeah, so, like, oh. Aldi... Like so, there's Aldi Sud and Aldi North. Um, so it's North and South in Germany. Basically, one carried tobacco and one didn't. And then like Trader Joe's when they moved to the United States was a branch off of one of those, and then Lidl's a branch off of the other one. And then like if I remember correctly, and then, no, Trader Joe's is that, and then Aldi itself came in, and then Lidl's just this other competitor, like low cost German grocery store. So oh. yeah, but like there there are more Lidl's here than there are Aldis. And they're like the same thing, basically, like super like stuff by the palette, like a bunch of fresh stuff. Like I think, yeah, Lidl's like super big for their bakeries. Like they mm. bake crap constantly. <laughs> yeah, so, and actually, they and, like yeah, five employees. They actually they have a really interesting wine selection. It's mm-hmm. it's basically it they they both do yeah. So like, but Lidl has like mainstream decent wine. But it's labeled slightly differently, so I don't know what the difference is. But like you and I, I think we reviewed one that was like Black Stallion or something like that, which mm-hmm. is, is a mainstream wine. You can get it at, at Total Wine or whatever. And the label at 
Lidl is different than the label at Total Wine. So same year, same vintage, same label as far as like the information on it, but the label, the way it, it looks is different. So I don't know if there's a difference in the wine. I think they just basically contract pre-purchase. That could like be. a certain volume and then like ask for special packaging. That could be, yeah. All right. So speaking of, what do you guys have? Yeah, that, that actually fits into both since I did buy this at one of the higher-end grocery stores we have. Oh. And as far as uh, what we talked about earlier, you know, how it should be stored, it was stored vertically because it was also in a gift box that came with some nifty glassware. Yeah, the oh, glassware that, is badass, too. Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, so I don't know. I guess that probably factors in the price point. It was about $25, but the glassware is very nice. They're uh, gold-rimmed whiskey glasses, and that's yep. because is a bourbon barrel aged red blend. Yeah, and this they, is a. Uh, they suggest to drink it out of whiskey glasses instead of typical stemware. Yep, it's a uh, 2016 California red wine blend, uh, aged three months in bourbon whiskey barrels, uh, from Cooper and Thief Cellar Masters. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pro the profile it says is dark and jammy with toasty vanilla notes, which to me nails it there is uh some spice a little bit of spice to it i can i can smell but the vanilla but i i couldn't taste it really oh well. i i can't i can taste it it's i mean this thing this thing is awesome you know my only complaint and and hopefully one of you can answer this is when i when i get a red wine blend i i, I wish it would tell me what what grapes and what varietals are are actually blended yeah um that is a so a complaint that's so, that's so obnoxious to me. I had a blend last night, and I was like, "This has a lot of Pinot, you know, Pinot Noir in it." And I was, I wanted to like verify my my palate, and I went to read the bottle, and it had nothing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm realizing that that's just because they don't tell you what's in it. Yeah, sometimes it's a proprietary blend, so they won't say that. But if it's a lower end wine, the reason they don't tell you is because it's usually not great grapes. And uh, if they say it, right. then they have a they. There's a lot of federal laws involved with labeling. And if they list a bunch of grapes, there's additional restrictions that they have to adhere to in order to uh, basically get their label approved. So, so it, Jacob, do you want to guess the blend? Of, I know. of what um, they have? Of ours? Yeah. Did You you looked it up? I, no. Yes, I did. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, go ahead and describe it one more time to me. Because I, I, so, I guarantee it doesn't have Pinot Noir in it. Uh, this is – it's uh, – a as far as the color and complexity of it, it sounds a lot like uh, Mason's. It's it's very, very dark, dark, very dark, almost black. Um, we're, we're drinking out of whiskey glasses, so I can't tilt it over um, to see the viscosity of it. But it's uh, it is jammy. I mean, it's jammy? Got, got a little bit of uh, yeah, and that's how that's the word they use to describe okay. it. It's got a little bit of a thickness to it. I'm, I'm um, in my it, very first guess is going to it, where, what's the do you know what state it's from or from what region? It's from California. Yeah. 2016 okay. California. Then my guess, my number one guess is Cabernet Sauvignon. That's exactly my guess as well. Yeah. Um, so, Jacob, um, I would say from Lodi. Oh, it's from Lodi? Okay. Yep. I would guess it's going to be probably some percentage Cab Sauv, some percentage Zinfandel. That was my guess too. Yeah. Um, possibly sim- some percentage Merlot or Malbec. So 38% uh, Merlot. Okay. 37 Syrah. 11 Zin. Really? 7% Petite Syrah, 4% Cav Sauv, and then three other red blenders. Wow. Ooh, Did you say any Malbec? Is there any Malbec in this? No. Really? Well, okay. There might, be in, there might be in that 3% that they're not listing. Okay. Um, so, yeah. And then, uh, so, so, what how, you, so how, what did you, you how did you find that information? 
I just Googled it. <laughs> so, I mean, was it on their website or was it yeah. like a wine a wine site? No, it was on their wine. It was on their site. Um, so, like, no basically, so here's the thing: is like, this is the complaint that Jacob and I had starting out. We didn't know wine well enough, and we wanted to, as you said, kind of refine our palate and specifically drink a specific type. And one of the problems with that is, and this is something that like you guys don't necessarily suffer from but like part of the reason like Budweiser is so popular is it tastes the same no matter what it tastes like Budweiser but wine doesn't like year to year it doesn't taste the same but that's one of the things like there's an episode of this uh, other podcast called Bigger Pockets and they have a business podcast and they have the people who founded Barefoot on it and one of the things that they were trying to do with wine was have a consistent flavor so that's one of the reasons you see a lot of blending is like to try to get the same flavor profile as much as possible through year to year. And when you're a lot of people who actually produce wine, just like people who produce beer, they don't grow all the ingredients. So they are bringing in wine from an area that may have had a, you know too much sun, which caused the grapes to be more alcoholic. So they've got to blend some, you know, they've got to cut it to try to not to bring it in under a certain alcohol percentage, you know, just all these different combinations. And so like Jackson blood, you know, kind of really did a number to tell it, like kind of show us, and especially like in a lot of the French wines and stuff like that, they're all like, everybody kind of knows what, if you're in France, what goes into that, but the percentage doesn't matter to them. Whereas like in the United States, and this is something that we, Jacob and I have tried to figure out why it mattered so much to us is why is it so important to know, what the you know what we're drinking and for him and i it was just kind of we were trying to tune our palates and the same kind of thing as you guys were saying it's like well what is this (laughs) well it's really interesting that you bring that up because um you know i I watched sideways last night and one of my favorite moments in that whole movie uh and and i don't want to give any spoilers away for those listeners that have a movie that's almost 20 years old and a book (laughs) honestly honestly i don't think i've ever seen the movie i i don't are you serious you've got to see it you absolutely have to watch it it's a it's become kind of a cult classic i think it's bigger now than when it originally came out i don't know what why that is it's just one of those that it's just uh, it's timeless but there's a there's this line it's this this monologue where two of the main protagonists are kind of having their connecting moment and uh, she talks about how wine is this living, breathing thing, and she likes to think about um, it, the, the life of the wine, from you know the, the the grape being grown and the 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 climate that affected it that year, and even when it's in the bottle, the the wine will taste different than it is today than it might tomorrow, yeah, because it's a li- it's a living thing, sure. And yeah. that was I just I just found that to be so so fascinating about wine so i don't know why you would try to normalize that you know because that's what makes wine great well i think i think because when you're mass marketing you get people who i mean like mason your your mom is 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 like a consumer of mass market wine isn't she Mm-hmm. Yeah, so oh, she sick burn. Yeah, right. box. <laughs> <laughs> but she she wants to know. She wants to know that what she goes and buys tastes the same every time, and that makes sense to me. You know, one of the reasons why I like uh, Michael David Winery, they have a Cabernet Sauvignon called Freak Show. One of the reasons I like that is that from year to year, it's mostly the same. It's not always the same, and it's and from year to year, it's a little bit different, but. It, it's mostly the same. So when I want something that I'm familiar with that I know is going to go with 
Although, you know, I don't really eat, I don't eat it with food. When I know that I want this flavor, that's usually what I go for, is I know that this is going to be a Cabernet Sauvignon that is aggressive, very fruity. It's going to burn a little bit. It's going to have that sticky mouth feel that Cabernet Sauvignon has. It's not going to be smoother tannins, which you can get with some of the higher end Cabernet Sauvignons. It's got these properties to it that I like that bring me back to a specific point in my life, and that's what I want. I I like that you used... I like that you use sticky mouthfeel. Yeah. Yeah, we're more we're more a uh, creamy mouthfeel guys. Typically, typically we're more we're more creamy mouthfeel <laughs> That's guys. That's kind of our brand. But but <laughs> right. sticky sticky not only describes the majority of the wines that I enjoy but yeah. certainly the one we're drinking yeah that's the that's the tannins that's the tannins in the wine that comes yeah. from the skins and the stems of the grapes because red wines are usually fermented on stem stems and skins and so that really? gives you the tent the tannins from those which gives you that kind of like grippy feel in your mouth so it's not a taste it's more of a mouthfeel tannins yeah produce more of a mouthfeel than a taste exactly yeah so like tannins are, are more okay. of like a stickiness and it, it makes it it's kind of like if you like took a bag hmm. of tea and put the bag of tea in your mouth and then spit it out that's the, that's tannins i'll take your word for it i'm not going to do it <laughs> you're not going to teabag yourself right <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's what it is is and so like a lot of the bolder red wines have that tannins uh you can but as it ages you get that smoothed out and it becomes you still have a little bit of grippiness but it's more it's, it's overpowered by other things and so when when that balance is sort of disrupted you get something else that causes maybe like like acidity for example if you have a higher acidity lower tannins then the acidity kind of causes you to create a lot of saliva the saliva, the saliva coats your tongue and then the tannins don't grip on your tongue as much so then it's like it's combating that. So there's a lot of like interesting science that goes into the flavors, the textures of wine, just like, like heavy mouthfeel versus light mouthfeel. It's interesting to try something that's a heavy mouthfeel. Like let's say that you have two white wines, you have a Pinot Grigio and you have a Vignet or Albarino. Both Albarino and Vignet are going to have heavier mouthfeels. They're just, they just feel heavier on your mouth. Whereas a Pinot Grigio is light and it's, there is a chemistry behind that. It, it's it's and it has to do with the viscosity of the wine. So it's it's interesting. It's interesting how all that works out. It's the a miracle of life. It, it yeah. really it really it's is. It's it's it's, it's a miracle of wine. <laughs> it a, is, and that's the thing you see with like a lot of like craft breweries, especially ones that produce like seasonal rounds and. They're like, this year it experiences this. Like, this is kind of what comes forward. Yeah. Like, uh, Winter Lager by Samuel Adams. That's not actually always that consistent in flavor. It's consistent to a point, but it does vary a bit. But, like, Boston Lager never does. And that's kind of because they're trying different things with the recipe. And also, because of it's a one-time production run that they do, they can have issues in the production run. So that's kind of the interesting thing about craft breweries is you're seeing a lot more people being willing to experience that variation but in a lot of people with like wine and this is kind of like you can think from a consumer standpoint like a lot of people like you know it's kind of that thing like a lot of people don't have five hundred dollars for an emergency oh so if you don't have five hundred dollars for an emergency and you're just looking forward to having like a glass of wine at the end of the day or like the end of the work week or something like that it's like are you really going to take that risk of like i don't know what this is going to be like 
versus, oh, I know exactly what this is going to be. And this is going to at least be satisfying. Like that other bottle of wine might be absolutely the best bottle of wine you've ever had. And then you can never have it again. Cause it's just like a, like this one that I had, like, I might not ever be able to find this again because once it goes on clearance at Kroger, it usually means they're not carrying it ever again. Well, and, and not even that. It's it's also vintage. Yeah. So like vintage like, year to year. I mean, that's one of the cool things. You know, beer has this a little bit, but but beer doesn't age the same way as wine does. Is that vintage to vintage. So one is the vintage. So I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this is so Rioja, which is a region in Spain, had a really, really good year this year. But their vintage won't be available for the Grand Cru until, um, I think, 2024. So it has to age that long to become the highest echelon. And once you get that, every year or every passage of time beyond that year, it's different. Because as it ages, the tannins mellow more of these other flavors come out and you get a lot more of the leathers, the tobacco, the slate, the, like this is a bad way to describe it, but dirt, you get like more of like the soil kind of tastes, but it's it, nothing wrong with that. To it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, it's it's and got these the thing other like, things. And you, and you get like degradation from the cork possibly. I mean, there's just, there's so much that goes into that aging process that like could happen and change things and like you never know if like the barrel may have slight defects in it like a part of the wall is thinner than the other part so it absorbs different parts of the profile only in this one barrel and then if they don't blend the barrels and it's just one barrel source like you could have a completely different glass from the same two wines treated the same exact way except for they were from two different barrels in the facility these these are extra things I didn't want to be worried about and and lie awake at night. Like I I just had a uh, I had a bottle uh, from Avery Brewing in, in Fort Collins, Colorado. I I cellared for the better part of a year, and then I had heard that they just basically came out and said about half of them were ruined. Oh, like no. it's not going to be good. So I was like, well, might as well open it up, see what we got. And one sip in, oh great, I'm fine. Then this giant gelatinous blob of Oh no! Of of yeast and contaminants fl- flowed out of the bottle yeah. as I continued pouring, and uh, and it went down the drain. And yeah. I, I guess the question I have for you guys is, is, is do you? I guess do you ever worry about stuff you're aging or saving? Like it's it's almost like a time preference thing. Like you you buy something really rare, a rare find at a store, you're gonna want to drink it right away, or you're gonna want to save it, but then worry that saving it's gonna change, it's gonna change, and it won't yeah. be as good. Or, it's well, kind of a gamble, right? That's think? why you buy yeah, 139 think, at a time. <laughs> you buy 139 well, at a time and prioritize 140 them. bottles of wine on the well, wall. The, 140 the, bottles. The funniest of thing wine. about that. So there, there's two ways to look at Jacob and I's like consumption. So I don't generally keep a bottle of wine in the house that I'm saving. I generally buy to drink, and rarely do I buy the same thing more than once because a lot of the times I'm buying them on discount or I'm buying them because I want to try multiple vignettes from Virginia. So I'm not buying mm-hmm. one. And I generally drink a lot of whites and a lot of white. You just, yeah, you can age them. Some age very well. Others, it's there's just no advantage to it. it they're meant to be drank young and fresh. And Jacob, it's not that he doesn't, won't save a bottle of wine because we will do this occasionally where we will kind of 
plan to possibly be around each other. So we may save a bottle of wine, but neither of us really have the space and we're not really buying the level of bottles of wine where you're like, this is a $400 bottle of wine that could conceivably age for another 20 years or longer. I mean, especially at a $400 price point. So let's see what happens. A lot of the stuff we're buying, it's like, you know, he's getting it from last bottle wines, which you can get a discount by going to our website, tastinganarchy.com. Um, but you like when he's buying those, it's not that he's buying them to like necessarily drink right away, but he's buying them because they're interesting. And he, and I hate, you know, Jacob, as you said, not to say you're yeah. like an alcoholic, but you're going to consume it. Oh yeah. Now, the may, thing, the thing is like, I think yeah. and set one aside for a while, but yeah. even then like, best laid plans of mice and men you and i are like eh, yeah i, I mean between the two like between you and me i think that probably on a on like a long week <laughs> i mean all weeks or seven days but on a long week like i probably consume three or four bottles a week which is quite a bit but it just depends on what's going on it depends on how much i've had to eat it depends on how much i've worked out if i worked out a lot i usually don't drink and and i'm also between you know Mason, you and I are di- are a little bit different too. I'm a big guy, and yeah. uh, it I'm six five and two hundred and twenty pounds. Like I'm a big dude, and I put on weight, Mason, since you and I have uh, <laughs> last interacted. <laughs> I, I'm about thirty pounds heavier, but uh, like I'm I every since, since Childerberg? Yeah, I, I I put on a lot of well, some of it's fat probably, but some of it's also muscle. Like I'm I'm. I'm lifting a lot more. I'm I'm starting to train for Scottish Games, and nice. so oh shit, yeah. So I've, I've participated in two, and I was so embarrassed by my performance. And my dad was there, so I was like, I'm even more embarrassed because my dad's really good at it. <laughs> and so, uh, and he's been coming out to Texas to do Scottish Games. So I was like, I've got to start putting on size. I've got to be big. I've got to compete with other people. And I can't compete in the under 200 anymore. I've got to like actually bulk. And now, granted, the alcohol doesn't really help with that. But uh, I I have been putting on size. I'm lifting way more than I used to lift. And I think my my distance when I throw is is also. Imp- I mean, I can measure it, so it is measurably longer. Um, speaking, I feel of- like the uh, the Scottish Games instead of testing for PEDs. They would actually test to make sure you're above a certain <laughs> level a certain of threshold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, appara- yeah. like, what you know? What's crazy is that like, my dad has been doing Scottish games since I was a little kid, and it, it just never occurred to me that it was a big sport. And it's not a huge sport, but like Texas is like the epicenter of like world class athletes for Scottish games. It's bizarre. Really? <laughs> yeah, I had no idea, but there's like. In in the area I live in, within like an hour's drive, there's like four world champions. It's just because Mark Ripito lives there. That's true. Yeah, he he does live here, and and a lot yeah. of them follow his his plan. Yeah, I mean it, it's it, and so that's one of those things that's funny is like you know he's, he, Jacob's like talking about that, and we talk about the, those sort of things. Like one of the things I was thinking about doing, and it it doesn't really work because like I was thinking about sending everybody like. Uh, a bottle of 120 minute that I've had for over a year at this point. But then I was like, wait a Will minute. Will just lit up just now. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. Jacob hates that. Yeah, so, I do. Yeah. Like he hates it fresh. And I've been safe. You know, I've got like last time 120 minute came out locally. Like I bought 
like $120 worth, which was like $10 a bottle. So I had like a year's worth. Oh, you told one. us that on the last yeah. time, the last time we recorded. Yeah. So, but you, but you well, still have it. Well, more came out, so I bought more, <laughs> and then I changed my sorting. So I think I drank the recent stuff recently. So I've still got like I still have eight at this point. So I think half and half for like the 2018 vintage and i think some of this is our early 2018 vintage and i think some of it's 2019 um, will will just got on a plane actually he's gonna come <laughs> pick some of that, get some of that from you. it'll be a, a if, I, if i can it'll be like a childerberg event we'll like okay. bring, out, bring out some all 120 right. um well you know we, we're all good so. we're all gonna end up doing another episode and we're gonna share i'm gonna send actually send you guys well I'm going to send you some glass art and the glass art yeah. happens to be Italian IPA and contain Italian APAs. Yeah. The glass that we're really interested in you right. looking yeah, at. Exactly. Crazy. So we're, we're our the next episode we all do together. I, I want us to try to do um, this Italian IPA together. Cause okay. it, it sounds awesome. Yeah. Childerberg throwback. Italian <laughs> right. it, it, well, it really is. It's, it's it is it, like that one was really interesting it and was. It's, it's weird that like the American, you know, IPAs used to be considered kind of like shit beer, and then mm-hmm. like yeah, and then America was like, we like this, and there's good ways to do it. <laughs> we like shit beer. We can work with this. Yeah, we can work with it. We can make it good. And and they're like, well, let's put in some citrus hops. Let's put some like let's get rid of these soap hops. My least favorite of the soap hops. So let's get rid of these soap hops. We'll put in some of these citrus hops. We'll, we'll, you know, we got some of these, you know, let's leave proprietary aside for the anarchist argument. We got these proprietary hops that are these uh, genetically modified or, or specially bred hops that we've genetically patented. You know, we, they've got all these new hops that are like, that are amazing. And in Italy, there's a lot of Italian beer manufacturers who are making these really awesome new beers. And what's cool about them is that they have uh, some of the yeasts that we don't have here in the States. So when you get a beer from Italy or from anywhere in Europe, you're getting these yeast um, species that are different than the yeast species we have here. Even when you even when you order like the yeast from there, as your beer is brewing, like there are other yeasts in there and it changes the profile and this is sort of the same thing with wine we, we run into this with with wine in the napa valley is that um napa has some of the best uh ambient yeasts for sour beers and this is one oh, of the reasons okay. why sour bread is really good from san francisco bay area and why oh, uh wow. have you ever had like the salami from san francisco yes uh, so the salami <laughs> okay <laughs> the salami is really good the the sourdough bread is really good the wine is good, and also the sour beers are really good. And it's because the they've chocolate got chocolate is even good up there. Like Girardelli's from that area. I, I, don't, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if the chocolates are affected at all. But the the uh, Brechtococcus bacterias that live in that area that make sour beers sour and make sourdough bread sour and make Italian dry salami dry and sour, all of those are the same bacteria. It's the same yeast, and that's why you get these special types of food from these different areas. That's why, like, sauerkraut is not the same everywhere. You get sauerkraut from Texas. It's different than sauerkraut from New York City. So 
like it, it's it it all of this plays into alcohol is that you have these different types of yeast, different types of bacteria that are making your food different, and that's what's cool about regional, you know, regional profile. It, it, it if you're if you're a winemaker or a beer maker and you're blending all of your produce um, after the fact from all of these different areas, you're just not, you're, you're losing some of that local profile. And that's, what's kind of cool about wine, kind of cool about beer and everything else. Another thing, another way to say regional factors, you could say environmental factors, right? Mm, that's you could also say the terroir, but that's yes, true. Environmental, environmental factors. Yeah. That which brings is us here tonight. That it, it that is. Um, so one hour, <laughs> one hour into the program, <laughs> uh, let's go ahead and, and get into the topics. And, and the topic that I wanted to bring up is the last time you guys and us spoke is we, we were talking a lot about um, the liberty movement in general. But we got into some environmental questions that we tabled for, for a later episode. And I, and I thought because of what's going on right now in California, having you guys on again would be uh, just a good way to – Basically, segue having you guys on again because Mason and I both really like talking to you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so wait, what's uh, what's going on in California? So right it's on now, fire as usual. No. Th- that's right. Yeah. So yeah, California <laughs> as usual is wait on fire. Say, are, are they? Are they? Are those yeasts and bacteria? Are they at risk? Because that's all I care about. Are my sour beers okay? I think it's uh, angry Dodgers fans just <laughs> still still <laughs> rioting out of, out of just bitterness. Yeah, but, yeah, probably. Don't you just that, that those aren't fans. That's just the homeless. They because they had to give them clothing, so they had to give them Dodgers clothing. So, yes, yeah. <laughs> oh. well, runner-up championship shirts. Well, see, uh, actually, the homeless kind of tie into this because they're saying that the Sonoma fire was possibly started by homeless people living in the woods, and uh, they they don't know what? for sure. They're they're trying to trace it down. So there's some people saying no, it's PG and E, and some people saying that it's the homeless. But it Big kind foot. of I'm on Bigfoot. Yeah, I'm on Bigfoot as well. Like that that's that's kind of my that's that's sort of where I always go to. But <laughs> this is kind of the thing. So so you know, you and I we we all got into this a little bit on the last episode and Yes. Uh I, I sort of broke our topic up into three portions and one and it's uh pollution, sustainability, and energy production. I think energy production is probably going to be the largest section, but I kind of wanted to go through pollution and sustainability because it's relevant to the wine industry. So, in the pollution, we are on brand and topic as it, usual. It, exactly. So, <laughs> po- pollution is something that is is a big deal in many wine regions, and I think there is a free market solution to this, and, and one that we can probably come to a consensus on. I have an article that I'll put in the show notes page, but basically, like. Uh, Pollution is basically uncontrolled stuff that goes out and onto other people's property. So anything that other people on their property don't want that is detrimental and causes problems to whatever they're doing on their property. I, that's what I'm going to say is the definition of pollution for this episode. <laughs> uh, Does that mean problems as far as uh, is down to like what we talked in our last episode we, we we hit on it very briefly uh, because someone that we referenced made the argument that even bad smells could be a violation of the nap. 
Sure. Uh, so we we discussed that, and yeah, are, is that is that kind of what you're saying? Even something is. Yeah, I, I am. I'm saying down any, to yeah. Even something is you know, and and Rothbard covered this, and I'll link to Rothbard's uh, portion of the Libertarian Manifesto. Uh, it's called For a New Liberty, the Libertarian Manifesto, and where he does talk about pollution, and he does he he kind of goes through like de minimis violations of property rights. So like if you have a flashlight and you shine the flashlight on somebody's house, and then you stop shining the flashlight on somebody's house, technically those photons are a property rights violation, right? But it's a de minimis violation because it doesn't really cause any problems there there's nothing they can demonstrate as a harm right. and and i think that's one of the one of the things that libertarians have maybe a difficulty communicating is that the that property rights violations have to just have to display a harm and it can be a psychological harm it can be there it, it is sort of wide ranging but one of the things that I think a lot of libertarians leave out is there are cultural norms, and whether we agree with the cultural norms or not, that makes uh, violations of property rights actionable or not actionable. So, can I, can I say something sure. just really quick about about yeah. the flashlight thing? Yeah, and this this may be this may go to your point or it may expand on it, but I, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a I'm a really good person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I just, I'm just a good I, I, person. Yeah, I knew that from the last episode. At, at my core, but when I there, there are times when I'm in a neighborhood. If I'm lost late at night and I'm driving, right, and I, it, when I pull into someone's driveway, I, uh, I will actually turn my headlights off as my car kind of points toward the house. That's interesting, and Jared. Because I've always, and thought, then I will. I've always thought you, you always, and I were similar people. I do that as well. You're a good person. So yeah, you're just a good person. I, I'm a better person. I don't. I don't turn into strangers' driveways. I find somewhere else, like an abandoned, closed parking lot, to turn around in. So am I but, the but, best person because I just don't get lost? Oh. <laughs> this is a big brain over there. Uh, no, no, no. So, what, or, what's interesting? Or the fact that my wife doesn't like to go anywhere at night, so like I just don't ever get to leave the house when it's dark, so I can't get lost. <laughs> I can well, blind someone with my lights. <laughs> what's it, what's, your, what's interesting about that is like I, I've had I have had multiple passengers with me be like, "Why are you? Why did you turn your headlights off? That's weird. It seems creepy." I didn't even think about it like that. It, I, to me, it's just like, well, this is a, it's just common courtesy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so to me, I, I think there's like tiers of nap violations, right? So yeah. so in a way that is an infringement on someone's property. Like yeah. if I shine my headlights on someone's window. Of course, I'm infringing on their property. I could, I could have woken them up. I, you know, sure. I, I could have woke them up from their slumber and you could have ruined, ruined, ruined their, their, yeah, ruined their day tomorrow. You know, but it's well, a capital punishment. The, the yeah. photographs that they were exposing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and but you know, and, and yeah, this is actually, not, I don't know if it's the same as me breaking into sh- their house. Exactly, and, and I think this is either you guys were talking about this or somebody else was talking about this. Where, I, when I was listening to the episode, I was like, why have they not read Mary Ruer? Because Mary Ruert gets into a lot of these very minuscule violations and in um, her book, uh, Healing Our World. Because Mary Ruert takes a very compassionate view on uh, the, the basically the nap. But she, she does, I think it was before people started calling it the nap. She wrote the book in the early, late 80s, I believe. And she was kind of going over like there's what's called a reflection so it's like you can reflect the amount of aggression against the person who's aggressing against you up to the 
amount that they're aggressing against you. So if somebody shines their lights through your window, the amount of aggression you can aggress against them is the is whatever the extent of shining your light in their window is. So like maybe But what if it's not about the light? What if they actually did ruin your day because you woke up? I yeah, mean, well can you go ruin their day. Then it's a tort. So like you know, a tort ruins their day. <laughs> <laughs> so, but like, it, that's, that's what she talks about. She's like, so, and, and actually Walter Block talks about this too, is where he goes like, if, if somebody like f- steps on your property, yeah, technically they're violating your rights, but it would be a violation of their rights to blow them away with a bazooka. Right. It, that's it's, not it's, equal. Yeah, exactly. It's not equal. It's disproportionate. And you would be the criminal in that case. So, so this is one of my problems with the nap. Is is not so much that I don't enjoy the the semantics and the you know the pedantic argument going back and forth. It's that I think these are valid arguments, but I think that generally libertarians and, and anarchists just need a little bit more compassion. Yeah, they so do. Not, I, I totally not so agree with that, that. It's not so much that shining headlights in someone's window is is a criminal act. Um, how we define it, okay, so we could define it several different ways, but let's get down to it. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a common courtesy thing. You're not being courteous. And I think, I think we need a lot more you know, courteousness and uh, empathy and compassion in our, in our movement. Yeah, I, I wish we could get to the point where you know, these microaggressions and just uh, good manners were the things that were actually debated yeah. know, instead of uh, you know, the pollution that that the Department of Offense does with, you know, polluting the rest of the world with bullets and bombs, sure. you know, sending them through the bodies of people the world over. Like, if we could get rid of all that, start arguing some some really, the minutia of property rights, that would be, that's actually yeah. my utopia. Well, And, and, and I know, actually think you're that right. at, at, if we, if, if humans started to adopt something like the NAP, I think it would slowly focus in on, you know, you'd start really broad, like, what what are violent acts that uh, that that violate the nap down to it would it would get more and more granular down to talking about headlights in someone's sure. window and then it would just become this thing where it's like okay we we are we are slowly graduating towards being a courteous human race yeah, we, we could talk about your brights on in the city where there's street lights yeah well you but mm-hmm. you know what this that that's a good point uh will is the we're not at that point yet at all and and one of the points that i wanted to bring up that's relevant to Tasting anarchy is is something that to me and maybe to you guys too. I'm going to share with you the article is a very clear pollution and a very clear violation of property rights. And that is um, in an article that I've got here today, which is uh, West Texas vineyards blasted by herbicide from drift from nearby cotton fields. And this is um, relevant because I drink a lot of Texas wines, and it's also something that I'm trying to get some guests on to our show to talk about. And it's basically Lubbock, Texas, uh, or the, the Texas High Plains region is where the majority of Texas grapes are grown for Texas wines, and they they produce a lot of really great wine up there. And one of the problems they have is that they share their environment with cotton. And also soybeans, or as the British say, soya beans, which I I don't know why that bothers me, but for some reason the, <laughs> the British say soya, and that and it's annoying. Are, but, they spoil, uh, are they spelling it with an extra U in there, or, or what are they doing? I don't know, but <laughs> but anyway, so soy and cotton is is very very popular in the Texas High Plains, and there is a particular type of herbicide that they use for cotton 
and it's called um, 2,4-D, and the other one is called dicamba. And in both cases, if there is any sort of drift from these pesticides, which are designed to react with genetically modified soy, soybeans and cotton, uh, it basically kills everything else, including grapevines. And we've got up in the Texas high plains, we've got people who were dealing with Roundup ready crops for many years and Roundup was fine. It wasn't causing that many problems, but Dicamba and 2D or 2,4-D, they are more prone to drift when it comes to spraying them. And so for anybody who doesn't know, the Texas high plains is basically, it is what exactly what it sounds like. It's a high plain. It is flat. It's high altitude, there are heavy winds, and it is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of just this region. And it's very fertile soil, a lot of people growing cotton, a lot of people growing soy, a lot of people growing grapes. And the problem is that when you put pesticides on your plants, a lot of that, the Roundup didn't, it actually had a component in it that made it so that it didn't drift as much. So Roundup Ready crops actually were a little bit safer. Now that Roundup Ready doesn't work anymore because the uh, weeds that are have been used, that, that have been in Roundup crop areas, those weeds have become uh, resistant to Roundup. So they've had to switch to these other types of pesticides, dicamba and 2,4-D, and these two pesticides, they cause they are more prone to drift. And so we've got a lot of uh, crops in, particularly wine grapes, in that area that when they spray these types of pesticides, it basically will float over to the field next to it. And it can float over to the field tens, 20, 30 miles away because of the high winds that are in that area. Now Roundup or... Uh, Monsanto and I believe Dow are the two people who produce these two chemicals. Uh, they've put out restrictions saying that you know you can't spray it at ten mile or higher winds. But you know winds are a little bit hard to predict, and also uh, apparently if you spray, well, I mean, this makes sense. If you have ten mile an hour winds and you're spraying it next to a vineyard in a cotton field you're going to contaminate all of those cotton fields. So there's several producers. One is producing Cab Franc up in the High Plains. Another one has 30-year-old vines, large percentage of which were killed by Dicamba and um, 2,4-D or 2, yeah, 2,4-D. What do you guys think about that when it comes to the free market? Is we've got got pesticide drift. That seems to me to be kind of an apparent, apparent pollutant. And, it and seems easily like you traced. A pretty clear cut case there, right? Because you you have a, a specific ingredient found on a property that would not deal in that ingredient with it being pure poison to to the value of the property. Yeah, and and that's how I would feel as well. As all, although the state of Texas does not feel the same way, uh, the state of Texas feels that cotton is a more important industry, and uh, that shouldn't matter. Yeah. That should not matter. Sure, in a the, the end justifies the means. Exactly. Yeah, and, and that's kind of my feeling as well, Mason. What do you think about this? I mean, so this is the the classic Monsanto's thing, where like they would sue farmers for growing their genetically modified corn that they didn't buy because it, you know, it 
released its spores earlier or whatever and then they would you know come in and find it on someone else's land um so that's that's the thing that always kind of drives me nuts is like you're not doing anything and then all of a sudden someone's destroyed your stuff and then been like well the state said it's okay so yeah well and i and i think that that's something that you know uh jared and and will we can kind of all get on board on and 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 rothbard even in the 70s addressed this in the libertarian manifesto i think liberty it came out in like the mid 70s uh where he kind of talks about this a little bit where he says like hey just because a state says something's okay doesn't mean it's okay like a pollutant is a pollutant and it's a property violation so if it's not a de minimis thing like you know we were talking about this this could be disputed or whatever but we're not even at that point yet is when somebody's spraying this stuff on their property and it floats over to another property and they're growing something completely different and it kills it you know that's a that's a that's a huge imposition hey sorry guys hang on hey <laughs> I want to. I want to say something on it while okay. he's while he's. Uh, so yeah, uh, you, I, you say something. I'll I'll, I'll take a break. <laughs> Hang on, I gotta tell. I tend stop. to think. I tend to think that this is the, the solution. Ultimately, is a little bit of a two headed snake. I think number one. I, I think the market is absolutely suited to solve the problem. Right. Yeah, uh, if Monsanto can produce something that doesn't drift as much, then certainly these other companies can produce something that doesn't drift as much. So technologically, I think there's a I think there's a solution there. But on the other side of it, I I, I tend to think that if you are producing a, a pollutant, um, it 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 should follow that same scale that we were we were talking about earlier, right? If if you have a campfire. Uh, that's about equivalent to shining your headlights on somebody else's property. But if you have something else that is doing detriment to the property or doing detriment to something on that property, uh, regardless of the scale, I think we're talking about a different type of act. And I, I, I really I really think in this particular case, it, it would be very similar to, to poisoning a well or, or, or poisoning a, a water source being upstream and, uh, you know, and, and polluting a river. Yeah. It, to to me, that's a clear violation of some sort of uh, of aggression. Well, and you know, I I, I kind of I agree with that, and it also I think that the homestead principle kind of comes into this. If they had homestead that they were going to spray this stuff in the area prior to these people coming in and planting grapes, then it would be on the people who planted grapes' responsibility. But they weren't they weren't spraying dicamba or two uh, four D up until the last like four years. Well, so by that standard, and this is this is one of those ones that you know this is maybe the minutia of the situation. How long had the cotton field been there using a pesticide? Well, they so, were they were using Roundup for well, many no, 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 many so, years. I, I know that. Yeah, but so we were using Roundup on our property. They knew that we were using a poison, which could have affected the grapes. Not saying it did, mm-hmm. could have, and that has become inefficient or ineffective and we've changed our methods. Hmm. So if the cotton field has been spraying some sort of poison for the last 90 years, that's actually, that's an interesting point, Mason. I had, I had never kind of thought about that is that, yeah, you know what they, they were there first and they were spraying something. Yeah. And and that's, see see to me, see to me, I still think it's, I still think it's a violation. I really think that I don't disagree 
but that's kind of the like this is one of those it's an interesting positional point because someone did then lose their livelihood and there is an argument to be made that no matter what they were spraying they had a requirement or a a factor of not impacting someone else's property regardless yeah. of what somebody was doing next to it beforehand because it's like no yeah. i bought this yeah. property with these conditions i didn't know you were going to send roundup was suddenly going to stop being effective you know i, I understand both yeah, yeah. Well, that, if, that if makes you want to protect against a neighbor doing anything uh that could affect your livelihood or your property you almost need to secure property with a buffer zone right yeah, you want or, to make sure or, that your, your, your apple yeah. cart's not upset. You want to have almost some sort of buffer where there's noise, pollution, uh, just bad neighbors in general. Or create some sort of an agreement. Yeah. That. Well, and that's interesting, Jared, you bring that up because there are vineyards that have come up with an agreement. And there are particular types of pesticides that do not have the extent of the drift or that don't affect the grapevines. And Mason, yep. you and I have a friend who... Well, I have a friend that I've met in person and that you've heard me talk to, uh, mm-hmm. Rowdy. Rowdy has around him uh, within just, you know, in his adjacent squares, they are growing cotton and they're growing soybeans or so. I don't know why I'm saying the British version, but uh, <laughs> anyways, they're growing soybeans and he has come to an agreement with those people. They will not spray the the ones that drift very easily, but he's still getting drift on his plants and their drift from places that are not able to pin- pinpoint is mm-hmm. because it's flat for hundreds and hundreds of miles. It's such a vast yeah, yeah, yeah space. It's, it's very difficult for him to figure out who is spraying it and who he can take a tort against. And I, I went out there and, and saw it. It was really interesting when I was out there har- helping harvest because he showed me, he was like, look, these plants here, I can, I can show you. These are young plants. The The older plants don't really have that big of a problem, but the young plants, I can see it. The way that these these uh, leaves have been withered, this is because of the pesticide. He showed me this one's from dicamba, and this one is from uh, 2D8. Is And it's a different type of, uh, like, they're damaged in different ways. Mm-hmm. So, like, one is, like, withered, and the other one is, like, made really thin and like has like pockmarks all over it it's really interesting so he's like we can tell we can tell which one is causing the problem and the the vineyard section that is most affected in his case is his daughter's vineyard where she's doing this for a 4-h project and all of this pesticide drift is coming into that area and affected her young vines and fortunately you know he's he's actually recovering and that stuff. But in this article, there's several people who lost, 100% lost, 30 year old vines. And for anybody who's listening that isn't really familiar with how uh, grapes grow, it takes about four to five years for a grape to start producing um, enough fruit for it to be turned into wine. So if you if you had a grape that was growing for a long time and it was doing really well, and then all of a sudden you have this pesticide drift. And it's three years in. You've lost three years worth of labor. It's a, it's a lot of loss. It's a, it's a pretty big deal. Um, and so I, I just think that's kind of an interesting thing. I'm not sure how we would deal that with with that as libertarians. I think there would probably be a normative process. Um, and in this particular case, the the people who are able to administer the tort are is the government 
and the government doesn't do a good job of it. They just they kind of make a decision who they feel is more valuable, which in this case is the cotton uh, farms, and they just say, well, you know what, we're okay with the cotton people doing this. Uh, I, you... I can speak kind of anecdotally about yeah. it. I tend to think that as you take these sort of centralized, large-scale regulatory bodies out of the equation, it sort of empowers people to 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 find creative ways to be cooperative. Mm-hmm. And from my line of work, where I work in uh, you know wireless uh, data delivery systems, and we work in unlicensed spectrum quite a bit. And we deal with uh, essentially the same kind of thing where there's interference. Interference is kind of the same thing. And, and, and mm-hmm. the RF space is very susceptible to something like drift. You know, it's not – we don't use that term, but it's kind of the same thing. And when you can pinpoint where that, quote, drift is coming from, if you can build rapport and build relationship with that person that is interfering with you – it's not difficult to find ways to uh, come up with cooperative uh, agreements and come up with uh, maybe a contract that says, you know, if you'll use, uh, if you'll pay a premium and use this type of uh, of spray instead of the spray that that you're using, we'll share you a discount. You know, we, we'll maybe sell you a discount on on the futures of our of our product, mm-hmm. and and it'll essentially be a wash. It'll be a win win. I've found that if you make those that effort to to make those relationships and cooperate you know cooperative agreements with people you don't need the government yeah and and the government the government doesn't fix it anyway as you as you just pointed out the government right. has completely failed to actually come to a resolution they just picked a winner yeah well that, that's that that's definitely true and that kind of comes into the other topics i have as well which is um We'll get into energy production later, but like sustainability is the next one, and that's kind yeah, of yeah. Let's let's get into that. Yeah, because sustainability is also sort of a government picking and choosing. Is that what does sustainability mean? And and that's kind of one of the things I want to talk to you know in in the in the wine industry right now. It's sort of the wild west when it comes to what sustainability means. It's it's a selling point. You can say that you're sustainable, but it. It means different things to different people. So for you guys, what do you think sustainability is? I, I for I, I won't speak for Will, but for me, I, I think that sustainability is um, is high type high time preference essentially. Uh, so it would be thinking about things in in my life that that are gonna last, but mm-hmm. taking it beyond that, I think humans have a tendency of thinking about future generations because we're parents we're grandparents yeah. you know we tend to think about is the model that we're using right now to generate uh, uh energy to produce goods and to try to prevent waste how is it going to affect future generations and is it eventually going to collapse in on itself mm-hmm. right so that's what i think about when i think about sustainability for example the the, the federal reserve's monetary policies mm-hmm not not sustainable yeah it's going to collapse it's going to collapse in on itself eventually so when you look at something like uh when you go back to energy and 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 pollution you look at something like the use of uh, petroleum well it's probably not sustainable a there's uh, a finite amount and and b we're not really sure um what the long-term effects of high amounts of co2 uh 
in, into the atmosphere actually you know what, what it is yeah so we know we know to some degree that it's not fully sustainable right mm-hmm. so sustainability to me is choosing things that are, are at a low risk to collapse in on itself okay that, that makes sense uh will what do you think uh i like the way jared worded that on the long form i as not a parent i in my daily life i guess i i don't think the long term mm-hmm. uh, as far as things like uh, recycling. I don't really recycle unless it's made very easy to me, you know, by the market or otherwise, and then I will. But things like um, maybe fuel consumption, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to take, I'm going to take the most efficient route as I drive. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to make, make multiple trips, not right. only because it's my time I'm wasting, but the fuel, uh, more wear and tear on the vehicle. Like I am very acutely aware of just kind of me getting the most value out of myself and my possessions so that I don't, they aren't added at additional cost to me. Say nothing of, you know, filling landfills, um, the residual waste, the the production of new ones. I, I want to wring out the most value out of my day and out of the tools and things that I use. Um, that's mm-hmm. probably the extent I see sustainability. And, and you can see that kind of with, uh, I, I, I was going to try and pick and choose a, a, a big company versus a small company. I can't think of an example. Yeah. But, but if you, you know, so, if you go and visit, like whether, you know, I do a lot of brewery tours and there's, you know, sometimes you see great sustainability practices at like an Anheuser-Busch. Sometimes you see them at a very small, uh, you know, micro local microbrewery. Yeah. Where they're, they're reusing things. They're selling the spent grain or even giving away the spent grain to local farmers. Everything's kind of in harmony there. Um, but as for myself, it's it's strictly what I control. I, I would never try to, to to make someone else change what they're doing to be more more sustainable in any way. Okay, can, can is... I just add can I add to that? <laughs> yeah, okay. go for it. I, I, w- I want to add to that because I think you and I are actually very similar. I think efficiencies within human uh, production and and waste is is very close to where I'm at. I think. I think a little bit more, I don't know what the word is, like uh, it's almost spiritual realm. Yeah. Because I, I tend to think that my behavior, even if nobody sees what I'm doing, there's something in my brain that is is connected to the rest of the universe. Yeah. I don't understand. I can't explain it. I don't, I don't know what I mean by that. But I, when I make a conscious decision to be a good steward of something. Yeah. I, I feel like it somehow communicates to the rest of the universe that that this is this is this is good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you, I don't, should, I don't you even... should basically you should totally be a Quaker, <laughs> right? Yeah. So 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 I'll take it even a step a step further, and I think you'll like this. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast today, and it was a, it was an environmentalist podcast, and the interviewer asked the guest what kind of what got you into environmentalism and she said well i didn't take a normal path i i didn't go camping as a kid and i wasn't like you know i wasn't into the environment as far as like out, outdoorsman as being an outdoorsman and she said i was actually a christian and she said i was sitting in service one time and the pastor said something about being a good steward of your your wealth and uh she said it just kind of somehow clicked in her mind that everything that we derive our wealth from is a natural resource. And so if I'm going to be a good steward of my wealth, then I have to inherently be a good steward of the natural resources around me. And I just, 
I was like, that that is me. I understand that. Yeah. I understand that because that's the reason I recycle. I don't recycle because I get something out of it. I certainly don't. It's a hassle. Um, I recycle because in my mind, I'm being the best steward I can with the shit that I bring into my life that is yeah. worthless. You know well, what I mean? Like, yeah. And, you know, package- I, I actually, I have a very similar, you and, you and me, every time I listen to your guys' show, I always think that you, Jared, and me have, have like, a, we're kindred spirits. Although we took we're, slightly different paths. We're, we're good but, people. We're good yeah, people. Yeah. I, I always feel like you and I, <laughs> I were, I'm like, oh, yeah, we're on the same page. <laughs> but like, you know, that that's kind of what led me to, led me to Quakerism or the Quaker beliefs or whatever is that sort of that same sort of thing where it's like yeah there there's a stewardship i'm given a certain amount of stuff in my life i can improve that or i can waste it somebody else will improve it eventually i I do i feel like it'll net positive eventually but i should be the one net positing you know doing a net positive now and well in the and the high time preference to that is also a factor yeah it it definitely is i can if i can throw market share into the recycling realm mm-hmm. right eventually somebody's going to figure out a way to monetize that once they monetize that then there'll be more incentive to throw recycle you know yeah if, if yeah. you can just kind of start that ball in the right in the right direction then you know then maybe i am really doing something for a generation yeah. two three four generations down the road that may affect my granddaughter or, or my my great grandkids, you yeah. know. And and, and we mean, and you know you know you, I think I think we mentioned this on the last episode we did where it was the that trash is an economic calculation. It, is that yep. you're right? It, it you just have to figure out how to make sustainability profitable. And, and sometimes it's just a perception thing too, because right now we're we're at a sort of an apex of uh, consumer tendencies. And a lot of consumers do want to, um, basically, they want to buy sustainable. So, Mason, you and I have talked a lot about a, a sustainability when it comes to wine and just sort of agriculture in general. What are some of the things that you've kind of thought about over the years that, well, I guess the last two years, because we're on episode 104, uh, that have kind of stuck out to you that have sort of changed your mind about sustainability or maybe not even changed your mind, but reinforced things that you thought about before? Well, so like I, I never put much thought into it. So I guess I'm more along Will's line where like I used to recycle heavily when before, and this is not necessarily something I learned from the show, but more of something that like I learned through you, like most city recycle programs don't actually do anything. And because trash is actually an economic calculation, most recycling programs end up just putting it in the landfill anyway. So I end up not doing a lot of that because I know locally, like they had to, like my city basically had to pay more for the trash contract recently because what they were offering, no one actually wanted to do it. So like, it wasn't like the city did the trash, but like a third party company was doing it. So like, it's interesting to me to see like actual things like, and I'm blanking up like biodynamic wine where they're looking at it from a more of, yes, it is like great to get rid of the pesticides for the terroir and things like that. But like, how do we do that? And then like doing the research and figuring it out and not going in and mandating 
that everybody do this. They're like, no, this is difficult, and we choose to do it it because it's difficult, but because we're going to see something from it. So again, that high time preference like aspect where it's like, no, 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 no. Like if we do these things now, these vineyards could be around forever. Yeah, and, you know, and like Mason, Rowdy was saying, like, well, let me let know, me cut let me cut you off real sure. quick, Mason. Is uh, I I did an interview in episode sixty eight with Craig Camp from True mm-hmm. yeah, Vineyard. Camp is what I meant. Yeah. Oh yeah, Troon Vineyard in Oregon, uh, which I think either episode one hundred one or one hundred. I can't recall which one with, that we had with. Uh, Jackson Blood, he had a wine from Troon Vineyard. Is mm-hmm. they they were doing uh, biodynamic biodynamic wine production, and it, it is it's it's a it's a it's tough, it's a hassle, but it produces something that is the full expression of the terroir. Which for those of you who are not listen, who who haven't listened for a long time, terroir is the full expression of the land and the practices that go into making the wine. And it took us until 104 to come up with that because we've been trying to describe it forever. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. How, do you, how do you spell that? How do you spell that? I'm taking notes. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Let me look it up. Terroir. Terroir? be like a T-E-R-R-O-I-R? Terroir. Yeah, I think that's T-E-R-W-A-R-E? No, T-E-R-R-O-I-R. Yep, I found it. Yeah, so so for those of you who are trying to take notes, T E R R O I R. Just read it from the the Wikipedia. Oh, sure, go for it. Uh, uh, terroir is the set of all environmental factors that affects a crop's uh, phenotype, including unique environmental context, farming practices, and a crop's specific growth habit. Collectively, these contextual characteristics are said to have a character. Terroir also refers to this character. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's uh, but even with the, wine, the, the entire process because it like that's just talking about the crop. They're not even talking about like yeah, this is the, general. Yeah, but like the with wine, it's so funny because it goes into the handling methods and then the mm-hmm. things you're bringing in by like bringing in different wine barrels from different areas that may or may not have been used previously. Yeah, so, so yeah, I mean you yeah. get, you get like Russian oak or American oak versus French oak. Like there there are there's so many different factors that that will kind of play into the flavors you're getting and then neutral oak and then just yeah like, that's right yeah is that yeah. switzerland is that swiss oak no no <laughs> it, 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 uh neutral oak is it well that's <laughs> actually i just got that uh <laughs> <laughs> neutral oak is is oak that's been used before so it's been processed enough that it doesn't really have a lot of flavor anymore but it's got enough of the, um, I guess, the barrier between oxygen and wine that steel doesn't have. So oh, okay, okay, yeah. So anyway, so in terms of sustainability, what what where did terroir come from? I mean, in in, in terms of the conversation, well, uh, terroir comes from because there's different things that you can do, um, and sustainability practices play into that. So if you have quote unquote natural wines. That's that's something that plays in terroir, and that is um, wines that have not had ad- additives added to them, uh, and that is something that is well, Mason and I, I think would consider that terroir. But we also had things like organic practices. Uh, you know, I did in episode sixty eight the yeah, interview with yeah. Craig Camp, which is uh, biodynamic. Biodynamic is like organic on steroids plus black magic, so it's it's like. It's weird stuff, but it makes excellent wine. 
So I, terroir could could be um, a way to say um, maintain soil quality levels. Yes, so exactly. You, you, yeah. you, you might say you, you might say in, in order to 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 maintain the, the quality of the product that I'm producing, I have to invest in. Uh, maybe maybe uh, bringing in layers of uh, mulch or, or or manure onto my soil to maintain the the soil quality because you can yeah. farm it and farm it and farm it and eventually if you have a bad monoculture you can destroy the land exactly right? yeah and and, and, that's, and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. then that's one of the things all of a sudden that it, you know your crop your sustainability is failing it's collapsing absolutely now, so. and that's one of the things that Craig Camp talks about is that their vineyards are. Uh, they're planted slightly further apart so that they can plant other things in between um, that help, you know, curb the pests so they yes. don't have to spray uh, pesticides on the grapes. Uh, now, granted, not all areas can do this because this is a very specific part of Oregon, which has very good weather and very good climate that makes it so that growing grapes is is very, I wouldn't say easy, but it's more favorable to this type of, of growth. So if you guys want to learn more about uh, biodynamic growth, you can listen to episode 68 with Craig Camp. Uh, another episode that's a good one that we, where we covered sustainability was episode 96 with Rick uh, Ricky from Alta Marfa, where he talks about he wants to use as, as few chemicals as possible. And that is partially because when you spray chemicals on to kill bugs or weeds or whatever, you're also killing the bacteria. And... One of the things that I learned when I did uh, one of one of my many many hobbies was uh, uh, aquaponics. So I used to raise tilapia in my garage, and the tilapia fed my garden, which was um, you know tomatoes and peppers and okra and all that kind of thing. And when you are cultivating a bacteria, you have to have a bacteria in the soil that will will uh, create nitrogen. So there's different things in the soil that are not readily available to plants. It requires bacteria and or fungus to um, communicate that that's what they need to produce. And then that gives that type of nutrients to the grapes and that produces a grape that tastes better. That's part of terroir. So if you're, you're heavily spraying with chemicals, sometimes you'll kill that stuff and that will change the terroir. So you may have grapes that grow very fine, but you won't be getting a lot of nutrients out of the soil that was produced by different types of bacteria that are in the soil. So, so can I, yeah, can I kind of bring, bring this uh, bullet point to sustainability to a, to like a, Mm -hmm. a, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but like a head. Well, (laughs) not only to a head, but also kind of bring it back to the anarchist theme, the, the, the market anarchist theme. that I think we all, we all subscribe to, which is, I tend to think that the market responds to, terroir right if, if you if you want to get the most out of your land or your say your laborers or uh whatever you you have you have to make an investment into that land or your laborers in order to have good sustainability so the market actually incentivizes good uh, behavior towards that sustainability that, that makes a lot of sense, Jared, because that's actually one of the things I wanted to bring up to in this sustainability practices is that you can kind of compare and contrast the West Coast and the East Coast when it comes to like things like uh, forestry harvesting. 
So, like, if you want to harvest wood in Maine or uh, northern New York or somewhere like that, um, there is – it's mostly privately owned. And so they do what's called selective harvesting. So they'll go through the woods and they'll find trees that are like, yeah, this is a mature tree. We'll go ahead and harvest this one and that will help the trees around it grow. Whereas on the on the West Coast, most of the forestry is done through um, government – owned land so like california is a good example of this is mo is about 60 percent of california is owned by either the state or the federal government and uh, -oh. uh and what they end up doing is clear cutting yep and the reason is because the people on the east coast have an incentive to harvest wood sustainably because they know that in the future what we were talking about earlier in the future they need this land to be productive for their children wow Whereas on the West Coast, it's land is leased, and they have no knowledge of whether or not that land is going to be leased again. Wow. And so they have an incentive to go ahead and just cut as much as possible. And they're supposed to replant trees and make it nice and all that sort of stuff, and they don't usually. Um, and so we have – we have on the East Coast a lot of – or uh, on the East Coast, we have a lot of like sustainable uh, harvesting practices, which is that they'll go through and they'll even go through with mules sometimes and pull out logs, uh, which is not something that's seen on the West Coast at all, is that they'll go in, they'll, they'll select trees, and they'll have mules pull them out because mules are a little bit more wow. agile and they can kind of get through that. Whereas on the West Coast, they just cut an entire area. It doesn't matter what it is. They don't, it doesn't matter if it's if it's brush that, that isn't going to be um, used for anything. It doesn't mind. It doesn't matter if it's pine trees. It doesn't matter if it's young, old, whatever. They just cut all of it, and then that's what they they you know ship off. And oh, I like that makes me sick to my stomach. Yeah. It, it. Well, you know, if you ever, you and I should. It, where Where did you hear about that? I lived. Where, in where did you read that? Well, I lived in California. There, Mises has quite a bit of articles about it, but um, I lived in California, and you can see it when you're driving through Northern California, where I'm from which is um, the smaller population region of California that has almost no representation in the government, uh, you can see it when you're driving through. You can just see hills that are just – that used to have pine trees, and they're just gone. It's just it's just flat. Wow. And, it's, and they cut all the trees. They're supposed to plant more, but they don't usually. Usually they, the company goes bankrupt or they move on to something else, and they, and they tie the state up and tort. And so the state ends up having to go in and replant. So this is the this is the this is the problem the Pacific Northwest has in general. Oregon is about fifty percent owned by the federal government. California is about forty five percent owned, I think, by the federal government, and Washington is about forty five percent owned by the federal government as well. So it it none of this land is owned privately, and it ends up being uh, auctioned off to leases, and the lease the leaseholders hold it for a certain amount of time, and so they don't have an incentive to. Uh, harvest it sustainably, so they just clear cut it, and this ends up being very detrimental to the environment in that area because it strips a lot of the topsoil that's underneath the trees. Whereas on the east coast and in the on the eastern part of you know east of the Mississippi, uh, this is not as big of a problem because most of the land is owned by private interests, and so they harvest trees and and different types of things sustainably because they need they have an incentive to preserve it for the future and you know we we've talked about this a little bit i i'll give us a couple of episodes where we talked about it um 
because this I, is. I'm uh, fascinated by it. It's it's amazing. Yeah, that's so wild. I, I made a note. I'm gonna look. I'm gonna do some research on that. Oh, it it, it is fascinating. Uh, I would I would go ahead and look. Uh, if you have, if you ever get a chance, read Mary Ruert's book, Healing Our World. She gets into it. That's actually where I was first kind of awakened to it when I was in my I, uh, early 20s because I'm from California, so. It never occurred to me that this was odd, that there was just parts – like when you're driving down the freeway, I used to drive every every year from Sacramento to Seattle. That that was – we went to a camp up off, off of the coast of Seattle, and um, there's some islands out there that we went to. And when we were driving, there's parts where it's just clear cut, and it never occurred to me that that was an issue. Until I read Healing Our World by Mary Ruert, and she explains like the difference between the East Coast and the West Coast when it comes to forestry. And it it and if you look at like forest fires, for example, forest fires are proportionate uh, based on private ownership of land. So yeah, oh, interesting. Yeah, it's very very interesting because people who own private land have an incentive to. Uh, clear out dry brush so that it doesn't catch on fire If in case of a storm or lightning or something like that. Whereas when it's the federal government who owns it, they own so much land they just don't have the staff to go and clear it out. And in the case of California, there's so many state laws that pro- prohibit uh, controlled burns that they don't have anybody going and burning out all of the brush and preserving the trees they just have all of this dry brush everywhere. And so when PG&E, which is a monopoly in California, when they have all these unmaintained lines that will shoot off sparks during high high uh, high demand periods, it shoots off sparks, catches the dry brush on fire, the dry brush ignites, and then it spreads very quickly because nobody's come out and cleared the brush. So... In Georgia, for example, Georgia is um, 1% owned by the federal government and about 3% owned by the state government. All of that private land, they clear it away from the telephone poles and the electric lines because they are worried that their land will catch on fire from the uh, electric lines. So they clear it out. They make sure that it doesn't catch on fire. And Georgia has a very minimal amount of electric fires. And they, they do still have forest fires. That does happen. But they have a very minimal amount of electric fires from man-made sources. Yeah. Uh, so it's a good thing. to. So anyways, just to give the listeners something to look into, uh, check out episode 68 from Craig Camp, uh, Craig Camp who is a bio, biodynamic wine grower in, in Oregon, the Applegate Valley. Um, I just followed a. I just followed Craig on Twitter. He's a cool cat, he's, man. He's, he's a cool uh, dude. His, his Twitter profile looks pretty cool. And yeah. I, I just looked up Mary Ruhr too. I discovered her a couple of months ago, and I, uh, we follow her. I follow her on my personal and peaceful trees, and follows her oh, account cool. as well. There's a there's a book. I don't know which one that I wanted to read of hers. She, so I'm gonna well, add. She I'm gonna two, add all your recommendations. Yeah, she has too. two: healing our world, and the other one is about the medical industry. That's really good. She's actually solely responsible for me becoming an anarcho capitalist. You should get her on your show. Have I, you, have, I, have you I, I've it? I've actually talked to her a couple of times because she also didn't. She's oh. a doctor. And she did medical research on alcoholism. So I've I've, I've thought about talking to her about – and the federal <laughs> did government – Did she do medical research on something that's kind of a conspiracy? 
because I think that's where I discovered her. That's possible. She did. Well, so she did. She did. About her last time too. Yeah. So she did medical <laughs> research on alcoholism, and she um, was going to. I think it was vitamin B six. She discovered that vitamin B six was a um, inert additive to alcohol, liquor in particular, that would be uh, fine to add to alcohol, and it would also help prevent liver disease. And Wow. But the federal government, the FDA said, no, you can't add it because we don't want to promote alcoholism. And she was like, <laughs> what? Yeah, exactly. And she was like, but this has got, this shows that it will reduce alcoholism by like 30%. And they were like, yeah, but we don't want people drinking too much alcohol. And so like, it's in her book, Killing Our World. She also talks about a lot of the, a lot of the research that's been done into like AIDS and uh, HIV and um different and uh i think it's called the angina it's hypertension and uh the fda uh having kind of basically suspended a lot of the medications that would treat hypertension for like 20 years and how like thousands of people died from hypertension because the fda wouldn't approve hypertension medications Wow. I'm, I'm definitely yeah. going to do some more research. She's got uh, a lot of interesting she, stuff on her. She's the best. Thing. She also, she ran for, um, she ran for the Libertarian National Convention nomination for president in the 2008 campaign against uh, Bob Barr and Wade Allen Root. And Bob Barr and Wade Allen Root were assholes. And they spread all uh, these, like, sh- yeah, exactly. They spread all these rumors about her that she was like promoting pedophilia and stuff like that, which is none of that is true at all. Um, not, she, a, not a deal breaker for us. Well, uh, yeah, sure. I think, I think Mason's right because I'm having some extreme deja vu right now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's where that may have been where I discovered her. That, that's yeah. possible because I'm I'm a huge fan of hers. Like she's my she's my hero. She's she's who converted me. Um, cool. And uh, I, I it was her book, Healing Our World, that really made me start thinking about these ideas. So, well, I gotta get to bed, guys. Because Okay. Come on. We have one more. We have one more bullet point. You can do it. Which could be an hour. (laughs) That's true. Okay. All right, Mason. Big point. (laughs) Why why don't you cut out? We'll we'll go and do. We'll do the last bullet point without you, and then you can listen to it at a later point. Sounds good, guys. All right, Mason. Talk to you later, man. Talk to you later, guys. Night. All right. So just to reiterate one more time, the episodes I want everybody to check out is episode sixty-eight with Craig Camp, episode uh, ninety-six with Ricky from Altamarfa. And or 96 and also episode 97 with bird where we talked about how uh natural predators of rodents and other types of insects can be used to help preserve vineyards and also that translates to helping preserve other types of crops as well very cool so that those are some episodes in our 104 episodes that you can listen to and check out so the last bullet point this is the one actually jared that i think that we briefly, briefly talked about on the last one, but I think that is something that is near and dear to your heart and my heart. And yeah. well, I hope to your heart as well. Otherwise you'll just be bored, <laughs> <laughs> but it is um, energy production, which is a big deal in the wine industry because of uh, in particular, because of the wildfires in California and um, what's going on in California right now. I'll go ahead and link to an article from Vox, which is a very biased source, but uh, this article was actually pretty interesting. Uh, they talk about decentralization of the electrical grid, which I'm very much in favor of, and um, they don't specifically talk about the wine industry, but the wine industry is one that would, would really, uh, I guess, benefit from this, and 
That's because recently in California, PG&E, which is the monopoly power provider in Northern California, Napa, Sonoma, um, uh, all of the major regions of Northern California, uh, Monterey, uh, El Dorado County, Amador County, all of those counties where they're producing a lot of, of, of grapes. Uh, you know, Mason and I mentioned earlier is um, Lodi, which produces quite a bit of, of grapes as well. Uh, you know, California is the largest producer of grapes in the United States. So this is a pretty big deal. And they've got very unreliable power as a result of PG&E being a monopoly. And this is something that, you know, I think Will – what was it Will? Who, who was it that I was talking to that, about this briefly where we, we talked about solar energy? Was it, was it you, Will, or was it um, Jared that we were talking about solar energy and whether it was sustainable or not? Uh, it's probably Jerry. It is probably me. Okay, okay. Yeah. We we mentioned it briefly on the last show. Yeah, uh, I, I think when, so. When we were together, and I think that's one of the things that we that I wanted to bring up here. So, California is is in a real bind, and I think that renewable energy is going to be sort of their boon when it comes to breaking away from monopoly power. Yes. Um, couldn't agree more. Yeah, and and I think that's probably the extent of <laughs> of our agreement. So. Uh, so- so Go what do you? It. I remember that we. I re- remember that we disagreed that that uh, green energy, for lack of a better, I mean, it was specific to solar, but green energy largely was not a good uh, solution for humans moving forward. Yeah, and I think that you were leaning more toward nuclear energy. I, I don't re- quite right. remember, but yeah, it was nuclear. And, and I'm not entirely turned off to nuclear energy uh, i'm not really that well educated on it but from my research and and i've done enough research to where i was strongly considering uh, starting a business in solar mm-hmm. solar is um so low profile as far as pollution and, and of course the manufacturing of the of the panels produces some pollution and there are some drawbacks of course the sun isn't always shining um, the biggest problem with solar is really storage. Yeah. And I think humans are on the brink of solving that problem. Well, that's um, interesting. I, I, that's very interesting because that, that's what I put in my notes is, is storage. Is That's what I kind of wanted to talk to you about. Storage is the big problem facing humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and it, it's, it's funny because I think, you know, labeling something green energy yeah. is is. is is fascinating because I I think that you know fifty fifty a hundred years ago hydroelectric power might have been considered green sure mm. and, and now we see it for what it is really and it's pretty destructive ecologically uh, it's pretty destructive uh, in a lot of ways it's not dependable yeah I know this firsthand I just I just flew to Las Vegas and I saw uh, Lake Mead oh yeah. It, it's incredible. I mean, it it's really incredible to see from a plane. Uh, one of the guys that was a passenger next to me told me that you know Lake Mead is over a hundred foot low, and I was like, "Wow, that's that's crazy." It didn't really click, and I looked down, and he said, "See that parking lot there?" He's like, "That's a boat dock." Yeah. And I looked, and it, and it was like, it it was I cannot even put into words how low the water level was relative to a boat dock that had been built there. Yeah. You know, years ago. Uh, it's it's totally unsustainable. Well, and, and, and so I think when you think about that in yeah. terms of what we call green now, is it sustainable? I don't know. Yeah, and, and I, that's kind of what I wanted to get into a little bit, just because it, it's it's such an interesting topic to me because that's uh, 
I don't know that nuclear is necessarily the most sustainable. And in a lot of the research I did in preparation for this episode, there's stuff that looks very promising. A lot of the stuff that looks promising to me also integrates really well with nuclear. So in the case of nuclear and coal and oil and natural gas, the problem is that all of those plants are designed to run at a specific level of efficiency. And if they're, and that's not necessarily when people need electricity. So the, exactly. And that's, and that's why I think that's actually why I think that solar is the way to go because it's not so much about energy creation. Once we solve the storage problem, yeah. this will all it'll all go away. Right. So and that's kind of one of the things that they were talking about in this Fox article, which is stuff that I actually kind of agreed with, which was they they were basically saying what we need to do is decentralize. And Oh, really? Which is surprising from a very lefty site. Yeah, exactly. And I agree with them. We do need to decentralize. And decentralized wind and solar might work with with additions of things like nuclear or large grid scale. They were they were more talking about like look, California is falling apart. We we have a huge problem where now we're having a blackout three, four million people at a time. And in the case of the wine industry, you're blacking out entire wine counties, which is billions of dollars worth of you know, Mason and I covered it in the episode, I think 100 or one or 99, where there's a lot of uh, winemakers who have had to shift their harvest because in Sonoma and Napa, they often harvest at nighttime because there's fewer uh, rattlesnakes and wasps. So they, they harvest at night to kind of make sure that their harvesters are not being stung by wasps and bitten by rattlesnakes. And, uh, which makes sense. <laughs> but, uh, there, there's they need electricity to harvest, and then also once they harvest, it has to immediately be processed and sent into wine production. Otherwise, you lose a lot of the crop. And if you do not have electricity to do that uh, in California, you don't have the means, and that's a that's a huge problem. So in California, they've been uh, delaying harvest, so they'll be har- harvesting whites early, which makes higher acidity, lower alcohol whites. And they've been harvesting reds later, which makes lower acidity, higher alcohol reds. And so this is a huge impact in the wine industry. So you're going to be seeing this play out in California red wines and California white wines, where you're going to be seeing lower alcohol whites, higher alcohol reds. And it's because they've had to delay harvest for several weeks in, in some cases because of the reduction of electricity availability. And this has also kicked off a lot of producers to trying to figure out a way to switch to solar, wind, and other types of non-grid. Yeah, they have to. They have to. Yeah, non-grid solutions. You could uh, could start selling raisins instead, I guess. (laughs) California raisins. (laughs) There's a a very expensive type of wine made out of raisins that is... Oh, it's pretty interesting. It's super alcoholic. It's very, very, very sweet. It goes really, really well with like mango pudding and like, uh, like orange sherbet. Really, really sweet desserts. Just to throw back to two hours ago when <laughs> when I suggested that you guys need to do more food pairings, mm-hmm. uh, I think I think you're proving that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So two <laughs> yeah. things to to sneak quickly on that. 
specifically in California, I think California is uh, the first state that is uh, considering doing salt mine power storage. Have you heard about that? I have, and I have notes on that. <laughs> yeah, and, and I feel like I feel like see this is where I feel like the market and innovation ultimately will solve many of our problems. That, yeah, it's interesting because after years of my conversation last time, I started doing a little bit more research, and I was like, you know what? Jared's not an idiot. I'm going to figure this out because clearly there is some storage options that I've not considered. And, and the salt, the uh, like salt cavern storage where it's like compressed yep. air. And yep. also the other one that was very interesting is liquefied air. Yep. I've heard about that one too. Super interesting. Could very be viable for places like California. But my, my question on it, let, let's go over it real quick and then I'll give my question on it. Go, yeah, ahead, yeah. go ahead and describe what the, the salt mine uh, storage is because it's pretty interesting. Um, so I, I don't know about it that much, but I do have a, a Clean Technica article. Uh, the world's biggest grid-scale battery uh, is going to be built in a German salt mine. And essentially, it's what you said. It's a, it's a, it, apparently, the environment is, is just right to where it can – you can put tremendous amounts of compressed air – into the salt mine with very little uh, volatility, very little leakage. And so essentially what it does is it creates a, uh, a generator. You can put compressed air in it, and that compressed air then turns a turbine whenever you need it. So when you need that power, you just take the compressed air, turn the turbine, and, uh, and, and, and you have energy on the other side. In order to get it in there, you, you can use any kind of power source to turn the turbine to compress the air into it and you're essentially getting a one for one input output yeah um was well, it it's about it's about 74 percent to one uh, i yeah, i didn't yeah. know this i didn't know the ratio but i knew it was uh, it's very close than, yeah it's, yeah, it's, it is it, it's super very reliable close. and what's cool about it too is that uh lithium ion is about uh over the lifespan of a lithium ion battery it's about 10 times the amount of power that it uh, cost to make whereas for one of these salt mines it's about 250 times the power over the lifespan of the uh yeah it's basically like a natural battery it's 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 amazing yeah it it is uh, it's incredible so i've i've known for a long time that there is a solution i i i brainstormed uh, a, a mechanical battery when i was really into uh, solar and i was trying to figure out this storage problem and i'm just one person and there's there are millions of people thinking about this and trying to solve it. Mm -hmm. But my idea was you could take extremely low voltage from any sort of a DC source, turn a a, a motor, and that motor could then go through some sort of a a reduction uh, gear and compress a hydraulic uh, pump. And then you could lock that hydraulic pump and store it away. And that, that stored kinetic energy could then be taken off a shelf and then reversed again into a generator um, the problem with that is with the reduction gear, you have a tremendous amount of loss. It's not, do, it's not efficient do. at all. But that's actually, but, that, that is one of the ways that they've talked about this is called a hydraulic piston. And yep, exactly, that, exactly yeah, yeah, my theory. It, and it works, it does work. It's about 44% efficient, which is more efficient than losing the power. So uh, it that's is something. lower than I thought it would be, but, but that's, uh, 
that's interesting that you found that number. Yeah, so it's about 44% efficient. There, the, um, the compressed air in the salt mine is about 72% efficient. Wow, that's a, that's a huge difference. It is a huge difference, and it, it's and but the problem with the is there's very specific locations for that. There's also another technology called uh, it's called uh, CAES, which is it's um, you can compress that in mountains. So it's it's basically the same the same same, same concept, but it's done underground in mountains, and uh, it also is roughly the same efficiency. There's also liquid air storage, which is like 80% efficient. Wow. And basically what it is is that it's a plant that you can you can scale. It depends on what, what the scale is. And it liquefies air. And then when you need the power, it... Cryogenic energy storage? That's actually almost exact. That, they actually refer to it as cryogenic storage in uh, some of the like YouTube videos I watched. Wow. Uh, wow. But it's it's they liquefy air. They store the liquefied air in uh, compressed thermal chambers, and they also store the heat that is produced from liquefying it and the the cold temperature stored from liquefying it. So it makes it more efficient to liquefy every time you do it. Um, and they pump that all off, and it's basically like a large battery. And when you need it, the air comes out. It, it reacts with the atmosphere and makes it gas again and then pushes the turbine and recovers the air. See, here's here's my theory. My my theory is that humans are going to evolve toward um, extraordinarily efficient energy storage. So I've and, got I've got one more thing after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay, so there's this new technology, very exciting to me. It's called uh, geothermal graphene rod storage, and it's okay, basically. That- or it's, uh, I'm sorry, not storage. It's geothermal graphene generation. And it's basically they stick a graphene rod deep into the Earth's crust where it's hot. And because graphene doesn't store uh, heat, it just transmits heat. You then use the molten lava at the end of the graphene rod. And because the graphene rod is also highly, highly, highly st- heat sustainable, so it doesn't melt in like the molten crust of the Earth. It will transmit that heat directly into the water or whatever sort of ammonia or whatever type of gas you want to transmit into electricity, and it will turn the turbine and it will generate electricity. And supposedly, that's almost unlimited because we don't use anywhere near as much as the heat underneath the Earth's crust. So that is one of the ideas that they're also using is that they'll use these graphene rods where the graphene rods are very expensive right now to produce, but they're learning how to produce them and spin the cables. Um, so that's one way of doing it. And then they can kind of also like one of the big problems with electricity production, and this will tie into wineries for anybody who's listening about wine. This, this does tie into it because the issue is that the production of like solar, for example, and wind is wind is very sporadic. It does, you don't, you have no idea when the wind's going to blow. Solar, it does have a very predictable pattern, but the predictable pattern is not when the demand is on the grid. Right. So that was actually this Vox article was saying, look, this is the problem, is that we don't have a demand curve that shows basically where the energy production is. We produce energy consistently from coal. We produce energy consistently from nuclear, 
and oil. We produce energy 100% consistently from nuclear. It just produces the same amount of power forever until the end of the cycle of those rods. But uh, And then for solar, though, we have a very high arc. At night, it produces nothing. In the day, it produces a very high amount. And then it kind of, at the end of the day, it produces very little. And it also depends on weather. If there's clouds, it kind of blocks it, so that sort of thing. But, like, there's a lot of times when solar is producing more than we need. How do we store that? Same thing with oil. Same thing with nuclear. How do we store the the peak where we're producing a consistent amount of energy, but the peak is at a different time? How do we store that? How does this kind of translate to the wineries? Well, the wineries have the same sort of curve as home use. When people get off work, they want to go to the winery. They want to go enjoy wine. They want to kind of do the tour. Yeah. That's when the wineries are using a lot of energy. There's also seasonal use of, of, of what the wineries want. They want to harvest at night. They want to harvest when it's cool. They want their farmers to be able to harvest at like a comfortable temperature. They also need to freeze those grapes quickly. They also need to transport that liquid at a low temperature so it's not fermenting quickly. So there's a lot of energy need at very specific times for wineries. Same thing with your household. When are you using the most energy? You're using the most energy in the morning when you wake up and at the evening when you come home. And that's that's the gap that we're trying to solve here. Right. And that and that's kind of what makes sense a lot with what, you, what you're talking about, Jared and Will, is that we have this sort of curve and the curve doesn't match up when it comes to sustainables. Now, granted, solar solar voltaic cells are toxic. So, like that's that's one of the I think one of the points of contention that you and I had. So, you know, photovoltaic voltaic cells are toxic. I, I don't think that we should be doing that at all because you're it it is a to use like a leftist term or whatever. It's a privilege to the West. We don't have to deal with that disposal, but China and India do, and it's poisonous. And we get the solar cells where we get all this great energy and all that sort of stuff. We're, we're willing to pay a premium, but like India, they have to deal with like heavy metal poisoning and China, same thing. So the photovoltaic cells, I think, are a problem, whereas if you paired it with nuclear, you could use evacuated solar tubes using graphene pipes instead of uh, lead-coated oil heating pipes. And you could basically heat, heat, you could get that heat from the sun to create the temperature differential when you're reheating the liquefied atmosphere, and that would give you what you need. Uh, And and granted, this is like, this is a huge, like, I guess, step up from where we were in the last episode because my personality type is I hear an objection to something I think and I'm like, I have to go and do research on this and see if I was wrong. Because if I'm wrong, I I have no problem admitting it. And and I may still be wrong on nuclear because one of the things that like I – one of the reasons why I like nuclear a lot is because I don't – it's not that I don't believe in radiation. It's that I don't believe that – I think the government has told us radiation is more dangerous than it is. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Uh, but I, I also think that there are there are alternatives to what we know currently. Mm-hmm. Because did you did you see Thomas uh, Tom Woods' episode on thorium? 
Yes. I think it came, it came out after, you know, after we yes, had our we episode. Did. I remember, actually, I remember seeing, yeah, I remember seeing that episode and being like, oh, I hope Jared listens to this. Yeah, yeah. It was good, really convincing. And, and I think, I mean, so here, here's what I was going to say. I, I tend to think that the way that humans are uh, evolving, I think ultimately storage is the big question mark. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I see happening is humans are going to start figuring out highly efficient ways to uh, store energy so efficient that maybe we'll figure out a way to create thorium, right? Yeah. And then, and there, and then once you once you can create thorium, it's the best battery that there is. You can yeah. put it on a spaceship. You can take it to any planet. You can uh, you can easily convert it to to electricity. And once we get to that point, it won't really matter how you're charging the storage devices, the batteries. Uh, what will really matter is how efficient are we then. Uh, uh, taking that energy from its storage source, mm-hmm. and what is this? What is the sustainability of that battery source? Yeah, we'll start answering those questions, and then all of a sudden, we're gonna we're gonna slowly start uh, funneling down to highly efficient, highly sustainable energy sources, and uh, there may be uh, there may be a, a highly de- decentralized charging methods to mm-hmm. charge these these sources. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I kind of, I kind of see that that's the direction that we're going to go. Well, we may not even be on grid eventually. We may just have chunks of thorium. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, um, that that seems to be the the area that I think we're going to is that like it's going to be highly decentralized because the the yes. grid system it, it wastes a lot in transmission, huge uh, amounts of waste. It, it does, and then also there's sort of the I don't think this has been re- realized yet because it it is to kind of go into another issue that like we talk about a lot is that it's socialized by the Federal Reserve Bank through inflation is I don't think that people realize the opportunity cost of the federally well federal and state centralized energy production is that it's socialized it's offset by inflation so you don't realize how much money you're losing and then it's it's a, it's a tough thing to communicate to people who don't who are not like involved in this is that solar energy has a offset cost in the toxicity and wind energy doesn't have that as much because Have you ever seen it quantified? I I've never mm-hmm. seen it. I I've heard the complaints about it, but yeah. I've never really seen it quantified. Well, that that's that's a difficulty because it it's 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 being offset in countries that are highly socialized like India and China. So it's like, well, okay, well how much is this, how much is toxic? Because that, they're the main producers. Exactly. Yeah, cuz they're they're the ones who are producing and and when you get into it too, like the solar voltaic cells, the ones that are the the solar, solar voltaic cells are the ones that are not efficient. The so, solar thermal cells are a different story. I, I yeah. see a lot of potential in solar They're, thermal. Those are fascinating. They are. And and, and we have a lot of uh, cases where hot, anything hot is, is very useful. So uh, hot water for us when we take a shower or we're washing our hands or whatever, that's very useful. But um, – this, the photovoltaic is the problem, and and that's where you get a lot of these heavy heavy metals, and that that's kind of offsetting it. It's hard to hard to quantify it because it's India, it's China, it's all socialized. They kind of obscure the numbers. I would be curious to see how many people are getting the prob- problems from that. Now, granted, another Vox article about this 
kind of goes into how it's a problem in these places. But again, we go into this a lot when it comes to kind of libertarian position on economics is that it's like, yeah, it is toxic. It does suck to be in China or India, but what's the alternative? And and not only that, I tend to think it's it's shifting the market. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is important. People people underestimate the importance of shifting the market. Sure. Uh, when when you take something that has been dominating in the marketplace uh, for for a long period of time, or even dominating a certain share of the market, and you start to say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna take this away and allocate some resource, resources over over there, the market starts to learn, and it yeah. learns this is this is good. well and you know this good. may this may be a we really need to add good some solutions we need to add some solutions to this mm-hmm. yeah and this may be a very good opportunity for the market good, to no, learn i'm a little bit worried about this because this is a government push through tax incentives to get people to use solar what is the opportunity but that's pretty cost? much died off there, in, in america has, there's yeah. very uh, comparatively most of those incentives have died off well there's places like California where the wine industry is very strong, where the tax incentives are still in the several thousand dollars, uh, which is not nothing. But then again, it, it is it, it's hard to tell. It, it's it's very difficult to tell. Is if there was, I tend granted, to think that, I tend to think that's because California is in desperation mode because it, a huge yeah. part of California's energy source comes from Hoover Dam. It it does uh, a lot of a lot of California comes from that. It also comes from. The fact that they shut down multiple nuclear power plants. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yep. Uh, Rancho Seco. I used to be able to see ran- if I went up to the hill behind my house when I was a kid, I could see Rancho Seco. Rancho Seco was shut down in the 1980s, and that was a very large power plant. And if you also went to the 1990s and 19 or early 2000s, I guess is you had um, what's the company that. Uh, that Cheney was like in charge of it was a uh, Halliburton en- Halliburton or was it Enron? What, what no, the- it was Halliburton Halliburton. Okay. En- Enron was before his time. Okay. So one of those companies was like, they that was a scandal in the eighties. Yeah. The they 80s. were, they were purchasing electricity from California and then selling it abroad. Yeah. And then like people like me who lived in California, we had to have these brownouts where like it just wouldn't work. Like our electricity wouldn't work for a period of time. And so like, oh, I, I don't okay. want to get too conspiratorial, and especially since it's late late in the night. Yeah. But and I haven't followed what's going on with PG and E. But I suspect that there is a scandal going on. I think so too. Because this is the third I, time. I, this is the third time my, they've declared bankruptcy. Something's going on. I, my my suspicion antennas are just tingling yeah. like crazy there, there's something going on it's not normal <laughs> well i don't remember if mason said this at the beginning of the show or if it was off air but his suspicion is that what's going on with pg e there's three power companies in california one is like uh well pg e is basically statewide and then there's one for like san diego and one for la and uh it seems like from what mason's saying and this is I like I, this is something that seems plausible to me is that California is leveraging the situation to nat or, well it's not nationalized but it's statewide basically make the power generation a state controlled company. Yeah, that uh, that sounds extremely yeah that that sounds 
very possible. It's it's very it's this is the third time that PG&E has had to basically offset about a billion dollars worth of losses. Wow. By declaring bankruptcy and the state wow. has allowed them to do it. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> the the la- the fires last year, the fires this year, the fires about 6 years ago, all PG&E. Now, they thought that the fires this year were caused by uh homeless people in the Bay Area. Yeah. Now PG and is saying, nah, it wasn't caused by homeless people, it was caused by us. Wow. And it's weird for a company like PG and E to say that to take responsibility for something. So whatever's going on in California, it seems like it's coordinated effort. It could also be that the, the PG and E shareholders are going like, well, California will continue to bail us out, um, which does seem to be the case. But we don't we don't know for sure. It, it is definitely de- detrimental to the wine industry in Sonoma and Napa because they keep having to have their power cut off, and and also Amador County and Eldorado County, which is Eldorado County is where I'm from. There are wine industries there. My sisters have live up in Placerville. They've been out, been without power for over a week, and it's it's interesting. I. I you know, I, I kind of like, I'm a sci-fi person or whatever. So like when I like think about it, I'm like, well, what, here's all these sci-fi possibilities for what they're trying to do. And that's like, they're trying to push people off of the central grid. But when I think about it more, more solidly, it's like, why would this, the state of California try to push people off the central grid? That would, that would reduce their power. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And then when you look at like these Vox articles and stuff like that, Vox is pushing for decentralization of the grid. And you're kind of going like, okay, I kind of get this. It's like power to the people a little bit. And the Vox article does sort of say that. It's like, well, we want regional. Gonna, are you going to put that in the show notes? I will. I will. Is that the it. same one you've re- referenced a couple times? Yes, it is. Uh, okay. I, I can I'm curious to read that. Yeah, it's very interesting because this Vox article, I, it's not what I would have expected to hear from Vox. I I would have expected from Vox something way more more statist. Yeah, it, it 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 does have its status aspects because it's like, well, what we because they keep they they sort of like uh, track back on what they're saying. So they're like, well, what we think is that people should be generating electricity on their own. And then if there's a power cut off, they should be able to just like at least part of the day be on their own power and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But the big problem is yeah. that, that PG&E tells them to have these. Um, there's these particular type of power converters that like, even if you put solar on your house in California, the standard power converters that PG&E recommends, uh, they don't allow you to convert energy directly to your house. They make you sell it to the grid. So if yeah. you, if you sell it's, it and that, and that is typical of, of a monopoly right there, it, it is, it is very typical of a monopoly. So what this Vox article is saying is that like, no, you should be able to run your house off of your own power. Granted, an entire roof full of solar power, you know, is not going to give you all the power you need for the day, for the most part. It depends on your situation, but for the most part, it's not going to give it to you Uh, because solar is just not that efficient. Like, I I actually went through it. The The most efficient solar panels for the private consumer are 28% efficient. Which does, yeah, that that number is actually old. I think it's it's like, as of 2019. But the problem, really? yeah, it is. But the problem is there are other commercially available panels. They're just not economically viable. 
So, okay, that yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that like that's how this this particular article sort of did it is they were like these are the ones you can buy if you're like a regular person. If you're like a billionaire, you can buy these other ones that are like quote, close to 50%. But according to a lot of the articles I've read is that in order for this to be economically viable, you have to be approaching 70%. Yeah. So 50% is good, but you need some way to store it. Compressed air is great. You can even yep. do compressed air in – if you want to do it just on your household, you can do compressed air in your like garage or whatever. So when you're not at home, it's compressing it. It's loud. It's kind of annoying. But if you're not there, it doesn't matter. So you compress it, and then if the grid goes out, well, yeah, you've got you've got two days' worth of electricity stored in compressed air. But it's it's a it's an investment. It costs money to do that, and that's that's where the Vox article kind of takes a deviation. Is where they're going like, well, poor people can't afford this, so basically we need the state to step in and like make it so poor people can afford this. Yeah. So that's kind of like the deviation. So I, I think Jared and Will, I, I'm not sure how interested in this you are, but this is kind of like where Jared and I agree, but there's like sort of like this deviation where I'm like, well, we're at this point where most people think of their energy coming from some sort of like ethereal network that they don't see and they never think about. Yeah. Whereas like in my mind, energy comes from whatever you produce at home, but I live in an apartment how do I get the rest of my apartment to agree to this? And mm. I think that's kind of where we're at. So let me let me run through a couple of the things that like I, I took notes on for energy production because this is relevant to the wine industry. Like I want wine producers to be able to harvest their grapes at the appropriate time. And if they don't have the electricity, they can't harvest it at the appropriate time. You have to harvest grapes at night because there's a diurnal temperature shift Grapes change their sugar production at night so that you can get different types of uh, – there's like different proteins and enzymes that are producing grapes at night so you can get different flavors out of the wine during the day. So like there's there's this sort of shift at night. I need the wine producers in Napa, Sonoma, Amador, El Dorado you know, down even down in Chile, places like that. I need this decentralized grid. I need them to have this energy. I need them to be able to plan in the future to be able to harvest these at weird times. It makes sense. It makes sense for homeowners to be able to do this as well. So let me run through a couple of the, the things that people can do. So one is wind. So wind is is it difficult because it's up and down. It, it, it kind of, de- it, it deviates. It sort of changes over uh, different periods of time, and it's not reliable. And so they supplement that with gas or or diesel. Diesel is a very common one for them to supplement, which is not very sustainable either. The other one is solar. Solar has a very predictable arc, but it depends on weather as well. If it's cloudy, the arc is lower. If it's um, very sunny, then the arc is higher. So it just depends. You can even that out, though, and, and do predictability based on your climate. Um. There's the new one that we talked about earlier, which is geothermal rods. This is actually location-specific because you do have to have a thin crust to be able to drill down to the molten level. Uh, this would be places like, uh, Yosem- like um, not Yosemite, but um, Yellowstone, where the crust is thin, and you kind of alleviate some of that pressure and generate a little bit of power. 
So then well, we get good luck, good luck trying to to drill some rods into Yellowstone. That I exactly <laughs> yeah that that's yeah. a big problem. It's federally owned. So this is this uh, kind of gets into what you and I what what you guys well, also and it's me, a volcano. It is a volcano. It, it, it's pretty uh pretty uh volatile, right? It is, but or like imagine if you can kind of take a little bit of that power off, it's not as volatile. Okay, so you're like yeah, pop, that's... Pop, pop in a little zit and just. Yeah, exactly. 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 Break out away. Yeah. Like it's like, you know, like on the last episode, you guys talking about like, you know, people are like different like levels of gay. So you're like, you know, you get jerked off by a guy. (laughs) Not that big of a deal. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's it's that. It's that. It's like, okay, well, you know, we'll we'll go ahead and like kind of level it out. (laughs) So, like, but we got that like in places like Yellowstone where we, we do have the ability to store this electricity. Uh, we were just talking about it where you have you can have you can have uh, compressed air you can have uh, liquefied atmosphere you can have molten salt those are those are all good ways to kind of store this electricity so it balances out the grid and because the United States grid is kind of the entire country you don't have a problem you guys remember many many years ago I think 10 maybe 15 years ago at this point when there was that big blackout in uh, New York City yeah, yeah. I, I I barely remember it, but I do kind of remember it being a problem. So this is sort of the way that the grid could balance out is that if you have this energy stored that is sort of demand energy, they could see a dip and then they could kind of like spin up their turbines to like supplant the power. Right. And and that's one of the key reasons to do the energy storage. So we actually already have um, what we were talking about was the salt main salt mine compression we already have one in alabama and one in germany and they've actually yep. shown to be very very reliable but they're having a hard time getting funding to expand so hmm. it's kind of a weird thing there's probably probably for environmental reasons it, it could be environmental reasons it, it could be other government interests and stuff like that and and those <sighs> environmental reasons sometimes are it, it sometimes is the government having to deal with these other power companies who then also fund these environmental research companies that or organizations, nonprofits or whatever that then say, oh, we don't want you to compress air in the salt mine because there's some sort of bacteria that lives down there that's endangered or whatever. You know, like there's, there's right. a lot of these types of things. But I think if the free market was left to its own devices, we could use this type of energy storage. Even if solar and wind weren't at the point where they are, because I think that solar and wind are sort of propped up by the government, but yep. uh, even if solar and wind weren't where they were, so like nuclear could store the energy here, and nuclear has that problem where it takes exactly. a long time for it to charge up and a long time to charge down, and so it could be stored to kind of offset, so it could run at peak efficiency for an indefinite amount of time and store this energy to kind of equalize the grid. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what they're talking about in this Vox article is small-scale nuclear, small-scale wind, small-scale solar that yes. ch- that charges these and then wow. it can balance it. That's so funny that, that, that this article that you've, you've been referencing is kind of, it, it just is sort of tying everything together. It's interesting that it's coming from Vox, like you said, but... Uh, <laughs> Man. It's super interesting. Now, they, now, granted, the entire article, they put caveats in the entire time where they're like, well, "Oh, of we, course, yeah." Well, we don't mean that you need to get rid of the government, but <laughs> <laughs> so it, yeah. it's a lot of that. So these are these are really interesting things, and I think that like for grape production, mm. but in general, like 
sustainable production is something that I care about. It's something that you care about. It's it, it's important to the system, but the 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 key that's missing is storage. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. You guys want to yep. elaborate on that a little bit? Um, Will, are you awake <laughs> over there? Oh, I'm still a little out of, out of whack from uh, this whole daylight savings time fiasco. Oh. You know, speaking of uh, don't get me started un- unpredictability on unpredictability of solar, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the solar was consistent. It's our uh, interpretation of the our solar movement, social construct of time. Yeah, which doesn't make um, any sense. I, I'm I will, actually, I'm, I will, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very much against daylight savings. You know who's very into? I got, I got an argument with one of our friends who were, who's going to go camping with us. Uh, oh, really? Uh, I got into an argument over daylight savings time, and, and I'm with Will. Like, I'm I'm super tired. I'm fading a little bit here, but but uh, I, I I could probably do a three hour episode on daylight savings alone. Oh, I probably could too uh, as well. You know, you know, Rolo is is a proponent of daylight savings. <laughs> oh my are you serious yeah, yeah i have a i have a bone to pick with him <laughs> you should you guys should do an episode of him. i i hate daylight savings it's one of my least favorite too. things despise it that's one of my favorite things about the state of arizona mm-hmm. they had they had the they had the kahunas to say you know what we're not doing it anymore no more daylight savings yeah you hawaii, can hawaii is the same way hawaii is just like yeah we oh, don't hawaii care. does too okay i i remember somebody else saying that so there's two states uh, maybe three. You got parts of Indiana, Michigan, and Florida. Yeah, they're little pockets, yeah, little yeah. pockets. Yeah. Well, I, I will say I think all all together, and I, I want to bring it back to the market because that's t- typically the theme of ours, our, yeah. our show. I tend to think that the market naturally decentralizes things, and I think that I I agree with the writers of this article, and and I know I, I listen to so many podcasts that get on the right track, but they're so scared of letting go of regulation Mm -hmm. so i can almost just i can i can see exactly how this article is written i can't wait wait to read it but it's interesting that they're start of sort of catching on to the idea that you we have to start decentralizing these things because look what the monopolies have done whether it's a government created monopoly or uh or 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 a market force through government regulation or in in very very rare cases a, a natural monopoly it's totally destructive it doesn't it it does nothing good for society uh generally speaking um you gotta you gotta shatter those things down and you you've got to have uh in my mind decentralization uh it's got to take place well you know what's funny about that is that like so i i talked to my you know i have a diverse fund you know my family's all from california so like some of them are very hardcore leftists and I talk Natural. a lot to my uh, cousin Sasha, who is a big time Bernie supporter, very left wing, and we've gotten to the point in our conversations. Which it took us a long time to get to this point because it took us forever to get to terms. That that's the biggest thing is terms. Is oh, yeah. that like what what are you what you're saying doesn't mean the same thing to me as what I'm saying means right. to you. So that's yeah. that's difficult. But we, you know, through conversation and and us continuing and trying and being mad at each other and then like going like, okay, look, I understand that you're mad for a different reason than I'm mad and that sort of thing is that we we do get to this point where he and I have agreed, at at least at this point, and he's a Bernie Sanders guy, the only solution to the problem that we have in the United States right now is breaking the country up. And like. Like breaking like, it up, meaning like it shouldn't be the United States; it should be the disunited oh. states. 
And I'm breaking up like it's not you, it's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. Well, it, but, it, but yeah, yeah, and you know, he agrees with. He's like, look, we have we. You're in Texas. You've got different concerns than I've got in Seattle. We're we're very different people. We have different lifestyles. We have different concerns. We have different things that impact our lives. We should be allowed to make the decisions separately. It shouldn't be the decisions for the entire country. And we're not going to be able to arrive at an agreement for the entire country either. And I think that's... I'm actually, I'm actually really torn on that. And yeah. I think that would make a really good episode. Okay. For next time. All right. Well, we can but, get... But, 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 but essentially, I, I'm, I'm an open borders guy. Yeah. But I also think that there are a lot of good things that come from smaller states. Mm -hmm. But I think until you eliminate the state, you're still probably going to have those problems. And sure. You're still going to be on that slippery slope. Yeah. So, no, I agree. Uh, I agree that you're going to you're as long as you have got a state, you're going to have that. I think that the is he making like a secession argument? Yeah, basically? it's basically a secession argument. It's it's basically like what happens in Texas doesn't matter that much to what's happening in Washington as far as the ground concern. There Texas may Texas has a huge economy. It does have a huge economy, oh, it, but but it's it for, really like does. if if I dump a, a bunch of put, a, a bunch of like nuclear waste or whatever into the Colorado River that flows through Texas, like it's not that big of a deal to Seattle. Seattle it has affects, a, it affects Mexico City a lot more than exactly. <laughs> so like Seattle doesn't have as many concerns with what's going on here as I have with Mexico City. Exactly, like. Like I have, I have probably economically, I have more in common with Chihuahua than I do have with Seattle. So, yeah. like, there's that, there's that sort of definition where it's like, it's a different culture. We have different concerns. We have different lifestyle. We have different things that we're worried about, and yeah. we shouldn't have to be put into one big pot and then winner takes all. Right. And I he agree he agrees with that too. He doesn't want to be he doesn't want to be ruled by Trump. I don't really want to be ruled by Trump either. I honestly don't care that much because I don't really see he's had that much impact on me other than the impact that Obama, Bush, Clinton, Bush Sr., so on and so forth have had on me. Like right. they, they all have roughly the same impact on me as anybody else. Trump has a larger impact emotionally and psychologically on people in Seattle than they do on me. I would true. probably honestly like if Trump came down here, I'd probably get along with him very well. Cause and actually he did come down here. I watched him drive by my house because I live. <laughs> he he had a big uh, big like uh, rally in the American Airlines Stadium. Then I live across the street from that, so I watched him drive by. And the difference between like a Trump rally and like any other rally that I've ever seen in the past is that the people who are going to see Trump are having a good time. And the people who are going to go see yeah. Obama or Bush are pissed off. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's I the difference. I can't believe he had the balls to drive through Dallas. Oh, yeah, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, he drove right by my house. So, like, because I live across from where the where the Mavericks play and where the Dallas Stars hockey team plays. So, like, oh, I, wow. just, I just went outside to go, like, watch him drive by. And you know, my wife, she had, like, the great predictions skills to be like he's gonna per he's gonna drive by at this time he drive drove by like three minutes within when she predicted it was crazy i stood out there for like 45 minutes and she was like no he's gonna drive by at like this time and sure enough he drove by, <laughs> drove by at that time wow. i came in and she was like he drove by at that time right and she was like yep 
And I was like, okay, well, I saw him. He drove by. But, like, I had never seen, like, a presidential, whatever that's called, like, the the whole, all the cars. Motorcade. Yeah, the motorcade. And I, I was interesting. Like, I was like, oh, well, that's, that's neat that, like, probably hundreds of thousands of my dollars just drove by. But, yeah. uh, it was, it was interesting. But, like, the thing is, like, the people that were out to see that was huge numbers. So, there's a reason he came to Dallas. It, it gathered people from all over the place to come see him. Now, Dallas is a Democrat city. There's not a lot of people who are Trump supporters here, although probably more Trump supporters than, like, Seattle. But, and especially in my part of Dallas, which is a, a slightly more wealthy area, so there's probably more Trump supporters here than, like, you know, the shitty part of Dallas. But, uh, not to be classist, but I am classist. So, <laughs> the thing is, like, rich people vote for Trump. And that's the way it is. But uh, in Seattle, like, you know, he, he wouldn't have gotten the reception he got here. People loved him when he was driving by. It was hmm. insane how many people loved him. There was no wow. Antifa. There was no... There was like the one group that was like anti-Trump that was there were the Vapors. And they were <laughs> like, we... Yeah, it was weird, right? So they, they had all these signs that were like, we vape, we vote. But when Trump came by, they put the signs down and just like, we're like, yeah, Trump. It was weird. So that was that was the extent of it. Like, this is a big Trump area. So wow. when I talked to my cousin, like I try to like talk to him about the stuff because he, he's just not in that area. So he's actually, he lives in Seattle. I think he's moving to Santa Cruz, uh, which is in California, and then probably back to LA. It, it is a different world living in LA, the Bay Area. And well, Santa Cruz, I guess is not technically the Bay Area, but Santa Cruz is kind of leftist. Hmm. LA is very leftist, incredibly leftist. San Francisco's hardcore leftist, and then Seattle is like hippie central. So <laughs> yeah. it, it's it's interesting to see. Like when I talk to him, he's like, "I can't believe people think this way." And I'm like, "Look, I don't think this way. I'm trying to let you know that the rest of the country doesn't think the way you think." And that's yeah. something that's very important to remember when you're thinking about your future. Should I the agree. country be one country? No, it shouldn't because the most of the country doesn't think that way. And this is kind of goes back to what we were talking about with energy production. I was just about to say it does. It ties right back in to kind yeah. of put a pin in it. It does. You got, you know, people that in one area that, you know, maybe the hydroelectric works, a place where, exactly. you know, a geographical area where the thermal rods will work or where yeah. nuclear will work or, or wind or, or sun. Or not so much the, the power, how, how you generate the power, but how it's distributed yeah. because, you, 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 you know – uh, many different places are, are active at different times. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, where, the, where the power needs to be distributed is going to have different, like you said earlier, different arcs. Yeah. And so I, I tend to think, this is my prediction, and then we, and we got we to gotta wrap. Yeah, I think so but, too. Uh, um, but my prediction is that there's going to be a relationship between uh, energy storage and some sort of blockchain technology. And that, yeah, that was yeah. the one thing that I wanted to get into, but we're... Uh, we're pushing three hours here. This is a, mm-hmm. this is a borderline marathon. Yeah. So there's another topic for another time, but but I think that there is there's going to be something that we humans haven't even thought of to both store and distribute energy, and we're just going to get more and more efficient at how we do it. And you know, like you said, Dallas is going to have different energy production and consumption methods 
uh, inhabits than other cities, yeah. than, than Seattle, than, than L.A. And uh, I, I, I have confidence that we're going to start getting – that humans as a whole and the market – uh, are, are going to solve those problems. Yeah, and so I think I, that, yeah, that, that, that seems to me to be the case is that like the market is going to basically overcome the state's, the state's involvement in it. Is that it's like yeah. the demand is too high and the state restricts that demand too much and eventually it's going to even out. And sometimes I hate to say that because I know how it sounds. It sounds yeah. to, to, to other people that, well, I'm not that worried about – uh, climate change, for example, or I'm not really worried about the sustainability of X, Y, and Z. And, mm. and that's really true because I think humans are pretty resilient. We're going to solve these yeah. problems. Yeah. But at the same time, I will lead the pack when it comes to recycling. I'm happy to do that sure. because I believe in it and I believe in being a good steward of these resources that have been endowed to me essentially. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of – I'm walking on both sides of the fence. I understand that. But really, I think there's not so much to be worried about. Yeah. Well, it, it, I I kind of agree. Is that there? There's not so much to be worried about. There is there are changes, and one of the things that Mason and I have gone through in the show for this last hundred and four episodes, kind of to drop back to why we're celebrating this episode, is yeah. um, is that the wine industry is changing. Climate change does seem to be happening, and it does it seems to be impacting wine regions that are traditional for that, at least the last few hundred years. But to keep in mind for everybody is that the the way that we think about wine right now is really the establishment from about 1750 until now. And yeah. the climate has been, you know, I think there was a little, the last little ice age, like big freeze or whatever was 1816. So there, it, we've had basically a stable climate for about 100 years. Well, probably close to 250 years. So if you think about right. that, we've had a stable climate for 250 years. This is something that we've just got to get used to is that like climate is not stable. Hey, chill out. Speaking speaking of not stable. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> climate is something that's not stable. It's something that's going to affect your wine. Uh, Bordeaux is starting to introduce new grapes. Different parts of Spain are starting to introduce new grapes. California is, even though it seems like it's a mainstay, it's not. It's a very young region. They're introducing new grapes as well. So, like you know, we're 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 figuring it out. You're going to still get high quality wine. It may not be from the same places that you thought before. I mean, there are there are even wineries and uh, viticulture areas in Norway, believe it or not, that are producing oh, wow. high quality wine in these places that are very cold. So if the climate warms up, we still got good wine. We just got to figure it out. It, it, it's difficult and it's going to be a hardship on a lot of people. We as consumers can do our part to make sure that, that hardship is lessened as much as possible. But it's, it's something that's going to happen. The climate does change, whether it's humans or whether it's the sun. That's another story. And we can get into that at another time. So I think that's a great place to uh, wrap up. Do you guys want to do your plugs? Yeah, sure. Um, it's pretty simple for us. Peacefultreason.com. Uh, if you, you want to find old old shows, we are available on basically all the popular uh, podcatchers, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. You got to uh, subscribe Google. to us because we we have not done 104 weeks yeah. really in a row, <laughs> yeah. um, much less than that over a similar time period. So you got to subscribe. So when it hits, you know, it hits the queue, 
when it comes out unpredictable we're shooting for two a month yeah but, you know two a month is we're doing we're doing good yeah um but we we try to be social on uh uh primarily twitter but also uh, at facebook so at peaceful treason on twitter and search for us on facebook if you want to check us out there but we uh that that's really that's really the only places where you can find us and your, we're your, happy dis- your discord's that. pretty good too what's that your discord. discord your discord's yeah. pretty good I, I I really like Discord for what I vision the show being, which is a, a place where a lot of back and forth interaction can happen. It hasn't really blossomed into what I want it to be yet, mm-hmm. but I think it has a lot of potential. And of yeah. course, there's a lot of good conversation that happens there. If you want an invite link, um, I think there's one at peacefultreason.com, but if not, shoot us an email. You can reach out to us at uh, peacefultreason at gmail.com too. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I like your guys' Discord. That's what you know. I, I I'm still new to Discord as well. I don't really get how it works, but that's one of the one, one of the few places that I kind of still interact on is is the peaceful children Discord because there's something private and like uh, yeah, a, a little bit more intimate. And, and it's topical too. Is that like people listen to it and then they're kind of like, oh, I get what what everybody was doing. So then they kind of like yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So. Um, yeah, check out their Discord. Check out them on Twitter. Uh, and if you want to check out Tasting Anarchy, you can go ahead and email us, tastinganarchy on, at gmail.com. You can also check us out on Twitter, Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Um, the place on Discord that I'm most interested in people interacting with me on is the Childerberg yeah. Discord. <laughs> so Childerberg, oh, yeah. Childerberg's coming up. It's going to be uh, May I think 23rd to the 26th. Uh, I'll have to confirm those dates, but yeah. So it's going to be in the, at Emmalong Metropolitan Park in uh, Austin. You can see that. You can go ahead and go to Childerberg on Twitter or Childerberg.com. Both the dates are on there. So if you have any interest, you can also email me at tastinganarchy at gmail.com and I will let you know what the dates are. Um, we have a shirt, but I'm taking the shirt down this week. So... Um, because we've sold more than we should have. Oh. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. I was supposed to only sell a hundred because it was supposed to be a limited edition, but we sold about 110. So I'm taking Uh-oh. it down this week. So if anybody wants to get their orders in right away, make sure you do it before I take it down. Awesome. All right. Hey, so, yeah. Congratulations on episode 104. Thank yes. you very much. And, and, and we talked about this off air. Congratulations on episode 105, because that'll be, you're, you're sort of record-breaking. That's true, yeah. So for anybody who doesn't know, I used to do other podcasts. You can go check them out. Uh, they exist somewhere on the internet. The The Comic Kings podcast that ran from like 2009 to 2013, um, there was uh, like 100 episodes of that. maybe Or no, 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 there was like 80-something. And then I did uh, the Mike Federale show that lasted for 32 episodes and that ended in like 2015. So those exist somewhere out on the internet. If you're interested in listening <laughs> to Jake on those shows, uh, they exist. Check them out. I was listening to some of the Mike Federale show. It was interesting because the end of the Mike Federale show was when Halloween was. So I was talking about different oh. Halloween things. So if you guys go check that out, uh, you'll hear some of like my Halloween stuff. Because I had a weird Halloween as a kid. But 
Oh, oh yeah. yeah. If you uh, listen to our last episode, we we both did as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we'll get into that later. So everybody, have a great night and stay free. Knock down windows and tear down doors. Drinking half gallons and calling for more. Drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy, drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peterstown, buy some wine and pass it around. The age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, Blackberry. Wine, wine, cherry. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilsey at Willie's Den. He wasn't selling for the American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel. Have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Somebody's fifth and somebody's poor. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine.